This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I've never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who has previously read the entirety of the EU. So what are we today? Today, we have read and will discuss Shield of Lies, book two of the Black Fleet Crisis, written by Michael P. QB McDowell, and published by Bantam Spectra in September 1996. This is the second Star Wars book written by QB McDowell, coming out about five months after Before the Storm. Yikes, what a publishing schedule. I actually saw a tweet from uh, Mike Chen the other day about Brotherhood, like, he wrote that in like three or four months? Yeah. Reading Glasses had him on right around the time that that was about to come out, and he talked about the absolute grind of the Disney Star Wars publishing cycle. It's brutal. Yeah. (laughs) I'm amazed that book is so good. (laughs) Amazed how many of them are so good. Yeah. The Cairo's Trap, The New Rebellion, and Tyrant's Test were the next Star Wars books published after this one, with Tyrant's Test finishing up the Black Fleet Crisis. Shield of Lies picks up where Before the Storm left off. QB McDowell once again follows the three stories of Lando, Luke, and Leia. However, this time he divides them into three distinct sections, starting with Lando and the Vagabond, then Luke and Akana, and finishing with Leia and the Yavetha. Despite some trepidation going into it, Overall, you enjoyed Before the Storm. How were you feeling about continuing the story? I was looking forward to this, actually, mostly because I wanted to find out what happened next on the Vagabond. <laughs> it's not related to anything else that's going on, but like that was the most compelling to me. You and know what, what it is? ended first. It's because of my background in anthropology. <laughs> mm, that makes sense, yeah. I find that whole... The whole Kella, what happened to them, how does the ship relate to them, etc. thing, like, to be a really fascinating puzzle from that angle. Couldn't care less about the Luke and Akana stuff, for sure, so not excited about that. But I was interested to see how the rest of Nil Spar's crisis... The the main storyline, if you will. Yeah, panned out. So, yeah, I was looking forward to it. I think you've said before that you haven't read this series very many times. Were you looking forward to rereading it? Yeah. I mean, I've still read it at least half a dozen, maybe even more. Oh, my God. Okay. But, you made it sound like you'd only picked it up like two times. Oh, God, no, no, no. More than that. But just not the dozens I have for Thrawn or the Robes. Okay. It, it, it's it's just never been my favorite Star Wars story or, I think, a very important one. But on a reread, it is. I always forget how interesting this story, most of it is. Even the Luke and Akana stuff has its moments that I find very interesting, even though that is definitely the the low point, at least of this book. But I think the author does a very good job of building tension in all three storylines and keeping us just in the dark of what's going to happen next. Like, there's, I think, a pretty shocking development at the very end of this book that I don't think you saw coming. Talk about Han. I had just gotten there, as you said it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it coming because it was not telegraphed. Well, it was telegraphed a little bit. Which is um, what you want, right? You want a little bit of hint, but not like, this is going to happen sign. I just thought he was going to get blown out of the sky, basically, or out of space. So yeah, that was a twist. I felt like, so the the whole book, I just felt like, ah, this analogy is not going to land for you because you were never a church-going person. Sorry. But some people will know what I'm talking about. So there are some hymns that you sing in church where the kind of chorus or the main part of the hymn just gets repeated in progressively higher keys. And so you start pretty low 
and you sing like the verse of the chorus or whatever, and then the key shifts up and you do it again. And so all all throughout, like people are dropping out. So like lower toned voices drop out first and then like altos drop out. And then it's like just the screechiest, highest sopranos sticking with it. And it's kind of like, it feels like this amping up of tension and it feels like it's supposed to have stopped by now and you should have resolved the tension. But it just keeps going. But it just keeps going. That's what this entire book felt like. <laughs> yeah, that's like, that was a great description. I, I agree. <laughs> so what does the cover show us? So hilariously, the Falcon is in the background. And I say hilariously because the Falcon is absolutely nowhere in this book. Yeah, no Chewy Falcon, no it. Chewy. And then everybody else is kind of in the foreground in front of the Falcon. Lando's over to the left looking. Finally on the cover as he should be. Devilish and smarmy. Leia has her Endor hair. But what is she wearing? With the Ewoks. Uh, she's not wearing anything in particular. She's wearing yeah. something. She's wearing a, a top that is cut low enough that the picture doesn't show you what she's wearing. And then 3PO and R2 are standing there. 3PO has his hand possessively on R2's dome. Luke is largest in this whole shot. He's also in his Bespin flight suit situation. It almost looks like a cross between Bespin and Jedi because of the color contrast. That's just shadow. I know, but it, it almost looks like that's what I'm saying. And he has his much better Empire era hair. I hate his episode six hair. Really? I don't know if I've ever told I don't you think that you before. Have. It looks so dated. Like his I mean, his kind of feathery Empire slash New Hope hair doesn't look as dated to me. Really? Yeah. Oh, right. But the very sharp, like flat kind of bowl cut situation in Return of the Jedi looks. I mean, it both looks bad and it looks dated to me. Okay. And then he's holding his green lightsaber just just short of sort of taking up all the space on the cover. And then to the very right, Han is in profile looking right and looking kind of anxious. Oh, and like, I guess on the spine, there's a, I think there's a planet and a moon and the moon is about to go over the star. So it's a lunar eclipse, I guess. I don't know. I don't know why the Falcon's on this cover. There's no Falcon in this book. <laughs> and I had not thought about that until this precise moment. Really? Yeah. I don't look at the covers a lot because all of these people are 12 years older than they're pictured here. They have not been aged at all. And I get that between your like mid 20s and early 40s, people can look kind of ambiguously aged. You just look like you're no longer a young adult. You but just look like when they're young 20s and Jedi. Yeah. So it's weird to me that like. Like Han and Lando, I can forgive. Mostly. Like, Luke has broken every bone in his body at this point. <laughs> Shouldn't he look a little more haggard? <laughs> I'm kidding. He hasn't broken every bone. <laughs> He's kind of been through the ringer. Yeah. He should look... He just looks so smooth. <laughs> he should look more tired. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you ready to dive into this? Yep. Here we go. So, like we said, this book is broke up into thirds. The first third is all about the adventures of Lando and that wacky vagabond. Yes! Your favorite part, which is both good and bad to open with, I feel like. Well, it made it so that I instantly was back in the book, which uh, is good for me. And I think putting Luke and Akon in the middle makes sense, because I think for most people, that's the 
if not the boring one, that's at least the slowest part of the book, certainly. I can't help but feel that it must have been very interesting to people at the time that it was released. It was. It must have been very compelling. But uh, today, it's very boring. Because we're like, they're not going to find Padme. We know Padme. She's on Naboo. They're not going to Naboo. They're going to... Or whatever. Jatapatan. Yeah. Jatapatan. There you go. Or as Terry or Tyr. Like, they go to a lot of places that are not Naboo. Yeah. Naboo fact, doesn't even exist. <laughs> exactly. In this version of the universe. So, like, back in the day, this was a more interesting section. But it was still, the, it's still even when it's very interesting, the, the slow section of the three, certainly. Yeah, their philosophical discussions are... That, that's actually my favorite part of their sections, is those discussions. <sighs> it's just such a snore fest for me. Whereas Lando's is the most action-oriented and the biggest mystery. And then Leia's has all of the political intrigue, military Intention. intrigue, troop movements. <sighs> which but, is, you know... Depending on the writer... I, I think QB McDowell's pretty good at that. Yeah. I just... I'm sure we'll talk more about this later, but by the time I arrived at the end of this book, I felt strongly as if very little had happened. I do think before this comes a stronger book than this because of that feeling. Yeah. Like before this one was a great job uh, starting this conflict off. This one, it continues it, but doesn't do a great job of continuing it, I feel like. Yeah. I think the issue is that it is actually quite realistic. Like, of course, war it doesn't is. usually erupt over a single slight um you go full battle stations right away so like the creeping kind of ratcheting tension makes a lot of sense it's very realistic but in terms of like a story that needs to move along it's just not very satisfying also it was very weird to read this today it i had flashbacks to early 2000s america (laughs) in terms of iraq Mm. there's a conversation in this that we'll get to that just I've had that conversation. Oh, interesting. But we're going to start with Lando. Yeah, the fun part. So, 3PO asks Lando to stop the Vagabond because surely he's just been holding out on his ability to do that. Well, remember where he left off? Lando grabs something and the ship jumps to hyperspace, yeah. leaving the Lady Luck behind and the rest of Pac Paquette's fleets. Yeah. Not fleet, but... Task Force. Thank you. Lando says he can't stop it and that he didn't even start it. 3PO says that Lando did, and he must undo whatever he did, and quickly. Usually, I don't think 3PO's right. He's half right in this case. Lando did it start it. It turns out, yeah. Unintentionally, Lando started, so he can't stop it because he doesn't know what he did, but he did start. 3PO's yeah. right about that. We'll figure that out, like, in about 90-something hours from now. Lando asks R2 to let Lobot hook into his event log. When they lost the Lady Luck, Lobot was disconnected from it and all of the kind of feeds that he's always connected to. It's like us being on Twitter, but he's plugged into it. (laughs) Gross. Ugh, yeah. R2 isn't thrilled about it because he likes keeping his systems private. Could be hiding something in there. He Uh, knows a lot of things. (laughs) Like Anakin and Padme. (laughs) But Lando tells him to do it anyway. So does Lobot now know the truth? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Expanding That's the circle. That's never crossed my mind until just now. <laughs> Lobot tells Lando that Lando's glove flew out when the hole was in the ship and that the room is starting to repressurize. So Lando asks from where and they can't figure it out so he has R2 try and locate any hidden vents. Lobot thinks that whether it's a computer or a being in charge of the ship, their intelligence is limited because they are being very reactionary and then not going any further in what's going on. It's all like 
It's almost like they have a programming code that says, if condition X occurs, take Y action. Yeah. 3PO tries to apologize to the ship, but Lando tells him to shut up. Very loudly. He was like, we apologize for being here. And Lando's like, oh my God, stop. Lobot says it couldn't hurt. Someone might be listening after all. Lando eventually relents, but tells 3PO to do it with some dignity. And then 3PO starts going through his 6 million forms of languages, apologizing to the ship. Starting with the languages that are... Closest to Kella. Yeah. Yeah. Both in terms of sound and also, I think, in terms of uh, distance. Yeah. Yeah. Is it geographically if it's in space? I don't know. That's why I said distance. Huh. Spaceographically? No, that's not a word. It is now. No, it's not. I'm Shakespeare. I make things up. No, you're not. Meanwhile, the archaeologist team gets to the Kella planet. It's still an ice ball, and they really aren't equipped for the cold. They've come from the Bali, a tropical dig site. They decide to call for help from a team on Hoth. They were basically the closest and soonest they could get there, and they weren't quite sure what the plan was going to look like. Maybe it's an ice ball, maybe it's not. So they took a chance and didn't work so much. On the Vagabond, they put a self-sealing bag on Lando's hand to try to keep it warm. R2 has been over the entire area, and there are no vents to repressurize the room with. He says that instead, molecules of gas are simply appearing on the surface of the compartment they are in. Weird. Cool. Again, kind of like biological. Yeah. This is not equivalent or even a brother sister to the Vong, but it's Vong-ish. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about the Vong, so I don't know. I just know that they have biological ships. I, I, I wonder if part some of the ideas of the Vong came from this. Mm. Just in, ter- in terms of writing meta level, I mean. Lando decides that it's time to make their own door and gets out a cutting blaster. Meanwhile, Drayson is given the report on the Vagabond's sudden departure. He's troubled by it, but especially by the lone glove recovered, which I remember him specifying in this section was in Lando's size. And I was like, how, like, how, it's a glove. How different is Lando's hand from Lobot's? Like, could they really distinguish the two? If, like, like I had a pair of rubber gloves on the other day. I think it was, like, a size medium, and they were too small for me. So if, like, Lando's a small hand and Lobot's a large hand or the other way around? They're, like, sim- they're similar in stature. I would think that their hand sizes Maybe are similar. Maybe one of them has Dragon Age Origins hands, okay? Oh, God. <laughs> Horrifying. The Council on Security and Intelligence debates what to do with the Vagabond situation. They eventually decide to give Pack the Cat 15 days to locate it. By that point, the air in Lando and Lobot's suits will have run out, so if they don't find them by then, they're not going to find them alive. That's rough, but... Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. They are also aren't going to give him a ton of resources with which to carry out this search, because they're recalling most of his task force... Things are going bad. ...to deal with the Black Fleet crisis. Or to prepare to deal with the Black Fleet crisis, rather. There will be a lot of preparations and not a lot of action. <laughs> Lando tries the cutting blaster on just a random wall, but it leaves no mark. Lobot tells him to try again, but to move the blaster away quickly. So, he puts the blaster on, moves away slowly, nothing happens. This time, he puts the blaster on and moves away very quickly, and they actually see a small cut in the wall, but it seals itself a fraction of a second later, and realize they're dealing with self-sealing bulkheads. Which is kind of wild. It actually reminds me of the Living Metal from Dark Empire. I have no memory of this. <laughs> I think it was Living Metal is how they described it. It was some kind of weird metal, but yeah. Okay. Lobot takes the gun, and instead of cutting into the wall, he creates a small hole. 
it also seals itself up quickly, but it takes a little longer to close because just longer to close the hole than the slash down. They make a slightly bigger hole so that R2 can put a sensor through it. They also do some math to figure out how long it would take to close a large hole that they could fit through. They realize only one of them would fit before it was too small for anyone else to get through. Lando worries that such a large hole will be noticed and get them thrown off the ship, so he wants everyone to be able to get through at once. I think that's a fair concern. Like, even if it is the limited intelligence robot thinks, a large hole that, you know, multiple people can go through is going to raise a concern. That's going to be somewhere in that database of, oh, X is happening, do Y. So, Lando decides to modify some of the equipment that they have, and he takes the equipment sled, and he starts cutting it up to make it into a door frame. Basically, the idea is make a giant hole, stick the frame in it, and they all go through. So once ready, Lando cuts a large hole, and he and Lobot quickly put the frame in place. As they start going through, the outer bulkhead slash membrane opens up, trying to suck them out. They are able to get through, and Lando cuts the frame away, allowing the hole to fully close. They also feel the ship jump back into hyperspace. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the Kella planet, the archaeologist team locates some bodies buried in the snow, and they aren't too far down. Standard procedure would be to carefully extract the bodies, but given the time restraints, they decide to drill a core. That way they will at least get genetic samples, even though the bodies will be mangled. That's... That's rough. I appreciate that the standards are to protect and preserve the bodies, as it should be. It's all they can really do to help arrives with equipment better suited for this job. However, after arriving at the site, there is an avalanche caused by their drilling, and two more people are buried in the snow. Whoops. Lando says that they need to locate the hyperdrive and disable it. Also, to keep from getting lost, he starts putting out markers so that they can track their progress. Meanwhile, Pack the Cat is told his request for more ships has been denied. Some of the ships he has are also called back. Pack the Cat is unsure of what's going on and is worried. Exidro Lagorbaru asks if Pack the Cat wants them to go through some back channels to find out. He says, please do. I would like to have a better idea just who I must wrestle to keep this mission alive. It's at this point where Packard Pickett's starting to impress me. Yeah. Like in the first book, he was... An obstacle. Yeah. That's all he really was to Lando. And then at the end, he was like, Lando's in there. We're going to try and help him out. Now he's lost Lando and he's actively trying to get him back in a way that I think was surprising after the first book. Yeah. The tunnel, back on the Vagabond, the tunnel... Back on the Vagabond, the tunnel they are now in is zero-G, and Lando is wishing that 3PO had some kind of thrusters. (laughs) Apparently they put some on R2 before coming over, but not 3PO. Lobot thinks it's interesting that a planet-dwelling species would build a ship without gravity. That is interesting. They travel for 47 minutes, but haven't gotten to the end of the ship in that time. They've been going just straight ahead, pretty much. R2 pulls up a map. Based on how far they've traveled, they should be in front of the ship by now. Were you getting weirded out at this point? Yeah, I was like, what kind of Rubik's Cube? This BS actually reminds me of like old text-based adventure games mm. where you had to go into each room and basically draw your own map to figure out how everything worked. Because like, yeah. if you went forward once, that might actually skip ahead five rooms type thing, and then if you go backwards, it skips back only two. Yeah. That's very much what this <laughs> felt like to me. And th- that was a lot of fun I remember back in the day. I didn't get to pretty much any of them. No? No. My math teacher in middle school was a huge fan of that kind of thing, so we would play with him sometimes. Mm. R2 says that the ship is simply longer now, and 3PO says that's absurd. (laughs) Lando says it makes as much sense as anything at this point. For now, they're going to keep moving forward, but faster. (laughs) An hour later, R2 says there's some kind of irregularity ahead. They get to it, 
And it is the first marker they left. They've come back to where they started. <laughs> Do you remember your reaction to this? I was like, I have no idea what's going <laughs> on. Uh, it compels me, though. <laughs> okay, Benoit. <laughs> Lando decides to start stringing a carbon line through the passage. It will help them move if they don't want to use their thrusters. Lobot says it will also be a topological map for them. They go 884 meters forward, and they hook the line at four different points over that span, and then they get to a junction that was not there before. So they've done a lap somehow by going straight, and now they get to a junction by going straight again. 3PO suggests they split up one human and one droid down each passage. Lobot disagrees, and they stay together. You don't split the party, 3PO. Don't split the party. Of course, 3PO would suggest that. He's an idiot. <laughs> Lando chooses one of the passages, but it dead ends 300 meters later. They try the other, and it also ends. They backtrack and explore more. Eventually, with 41 anchors set, they have about 8 kilometers of line out, covering 3 major passages and more than 15 branches. They've found 11 stop valves, 18 switch valves, and 3 different routes back to the original marker. That's they, crazy. Yeah. They've also been in hyperspace for 37 hours, and 3PO wonders if the ship exited hyperspace without them realizing it. But Lando says no, the ship was way too loud the other times for them to have all missed exiting or entering hyperspace. He's also worried about how many jumps the ship really has left in it before it will need serious maintenance slash repair, or before it just blows up. <laughs> Seriously. In the 71st hour, they find a coupling panel, completely by accident. Lobot wonders why it's appearing now in an area they've already been through multiple times. He thinks the ship will soon need whatever function this mechanism serves. Lando wonders if R2 can somehow plug into it because, well, that's R2's specialty. That's what he does. Plugging into stuff. Plugging into strange ships. Lobot strange computers. is unsure and preaches caution. Should also point out they are all running on very little sleep. They haven't slept. I think in 71 hours they've slept like three hours total. Yeah, they've just been Something pushing absurd. and pushing and pushing. And they don't have any food. Yeah. They have water in their suits. Recycled. Yeah. <laughs> but Lando, partially because he's so tired and just wants to get on with this, he tells R2 to do it while Lobot cancels them otherwise. 3PO says since Luke put them in Lando's care, they will listen to him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Lando says, thank you, 3PO. I'm glad to know that you're still on the team. Lando's getting grouchy when he's tired. And... I mean, I would be grouchy too. 71 hours without sleep? I would be beyond grouchy. I would be incandescent <laughs> with rage. Especially with no food? Yeah. <sighs> I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> like, I had a perfectly serviceable breakfast. <laughs> R2 approaches the panel very slowly and scans it. Also, without telling Lando, he has opened another data register to Lobot's neural interface. R2 is listening to Lando, but he's like, I'm kind of on Lobot's side in this one, so I'm going to plug him into me. R2 and 3PO end up arguing, and eventually 3PO just floats away and grabs onto the panel. They all hear a loud burst of static and see a blue glow. Energy is crackling up the panel, and Lobot tells 3PO to not let go, but his warning comes too late as 3PO has already let go. A bolt of energy comes out and heads down the passage, burning the line, the carbon line that they put out, as it goes. 3PO's arm is burned black from the energy, and R2 goes to 3PO, loudly scolding Lando. Lando tries to approach, but R2 won't let him which is kind of a hilarious image. Only I can abuse this droid. Basically, they're siblings. <laughs> Lobot and R2 look over 3PO, and Lobot says that his arm is beyond repair. 
Maybe this is where it gets the red arm and Force Awakens. Wait, no, wrong universe. <laughs> the energy comes back around. Lando realizes that the passages that they're in are conductors. They are superconducting accumulators, maybe even some sort of gas tube cascade generator, whatever the heck that means. Lobot thinks they are for the ship's weapons. They realize the ship was testing and getting its weapons ready, so that must mean it's about to exit hyperspace, which it does, and groans loudly. Lando grabs the sensor limpet and asks which way to the outer hull. R2 doesn't answer because he's still not happy. (laughs) But Lobot points the way and Lando goes to it with the cutting blaster. He gets to the hull and cuts a small hole and gets the limpet onto the outside of the ship. The compartments he cut through to get here are dark, and he explores them on his way back. He sees a collage of faces on the wall. Creepy. Lando gets back, and Freepio is confused, but talking. Yay? He is ready to blame R2, but Lando says, no, 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 this is my fault, and he apologizes to Freepio, which is nice. Lobot says the charge came around four more times, and then the panel absorbed it. Lando asks R2 to hook up with the limpet he put on the ship. R2 is apparently on strike from taking orders from Lando, though. Lando does eventually convince him that it will help 3PO and shows the data to Lobot. They are beyond New Republic space at this point. The nearest inhabited system is Prakith, controlled by Imperial warlord Bogabril. Yay! Whoops. Lando says they should get out of the accumulator and go to where Lando went since nothing bad happened when he went through there. When they get there, they will all take a six-hour nap, he orders. R2 is considering giving Lando a second chance. Lando and Lobot both sleep through their alarms and wake up 16 hours later. Lando feels a little guilty about the lost time, but realizes their bodies really needed it. He's also hungry and feels disgusting and wants a shower. So they're nearing the 90-hour mark, give or take. Yeah. Time's ticking. 3PO's voice is mostly back. Though there is some background buzzing when he talks, which, good God, you can make that door even more annoying, apparently. Yeah. Who knew? also mentions that he can't repeat half of what R2 says. And we've always known it, but it's just nice to have confirmation that R2 is constantly and always swearing up a storm. I love this little detail. I'm so glad Kimi McDowell included it. It's one of my favorite things. You can just tell by his tone. Oh, absolutely. He has such a disrespectful tone. <laughs> but just, I'm so glad it's finally confirmed. And, and, I wish three people would actually translate what R2 was saying. That would be really funny. In his very prissy voice. <sighs> they are in another locked room and they look around. After 3PO's accident, Lobot is starting to think that the ship is not hostile. An interesting conclusion. He thinks what Lando touched was an emergency lock close switch and it worked as intended. He basically hit the eject slash escape button. He also believes the ship is not sentient nor controlled by sentient beings. It's a work of great ingenuity, but not intelligence. He eventually convinces Lando of this line of thinking. Yeah, basically everything that's happened, it's been an automatic response to what they've done, or an automatic response the ship is supposed to do, like prep the weapons before exiting hyperspace. You cut a big hole in me, I try and get rid Close of you. Close it. Yeah. <laughs> they know it responds to touch, so Lobot takes his gloves off and starts touching the wall. Shapes and colors start filling the room. Lobot drums on the wall and music answers. Lando joins in on the fun. Eventually, they both find doors on opposite sides of the chamber. Meanwhile, pack paquette ships come across the remains of the sled that Lando had cut, and they aren't sure if Lando actually touched it. His bio-info is not on file. <laughs> this part cracked me up. Records show it was taken at least three times, but has always disappeared. They do find some kind of weird artificial cells on the sled as well. 
Must be from the ship. Yeah, when he was trying to close around it. But yeah, it is pretty amusing that like, it was basically his DNA taken three times and he gets it deleted every time. <laughs> Swipes it, steals it. Over the next several hours, R2 adds 20 more rooms to his map. So we're probably 100 hours by now, at least. Yeah. The 21st room is different from the others. They've found several map rooms, and this is the ninth. But when they touch the map, it causes an eruption to occur on the map, and the room fills with smoke and fire. Yeah, so it's not just like an image of an eruption. Like, there's literally fire in the room they're in. <laughs> the map burns away. They leave the room and come back a few minutes later, and the map is back. They trigger it again, but watch more closely this time. Lobot thinks that this is a history lesson. Something happened to the Kella city that is on this map. Lando has a realization here and asks for an update on the auction level and is told that it's up to 15%. So he's like, R2, come with me. We're going to the first room. And R2 actually follows him. The Blood Price, a ship that owes its allegiance to Fogabril, spots the Vagabond from far away. They are in the middle of something, so Captain Dogot decides they will go for it when done with their current business. He does send coordinates for close to the Vagabond to other ships, but he places those coordinates far enough away that he'll be the first one there to claim the prize. But also close enough to the Vagabond where they can't then micro-jump to it. Yeah. Lando wakes Lobot up. His helmet is off and apparently has been for an hour. Something happened during their earlier 16-hour nap. All the rooms now have oxygen, which R2 tested for. The weapon systems were just a wrong turn. The ship expected visitors to come to these rooms, not the accumulator. Lobot asks where the CO2 went. Lando says the ship is alive-ish. It breathed it in and gave the oxygen back. That's cool. Seems cool. The blood price arrives and charges its ion cannon. They don't recognize the ship design, of course, because no one recognizes the ship design. <laughs> R2 says another ship is here and shows a hollow of it. And Lando says it's an Imperial Escort frigate. And they're like, uh-oh, not uh -oh. bad. The Blood Price fires on the Vagabond, frying the limpets. And they're like, oh, we can't see anything now. Great. Fun. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to rely on the ship to shoot these guys. <laughs> As the other ships approach that the Blood Price had called, they see the Blood Price be destroyed by the unidentified ship. So the Vagabond can still fight back. Yep. Pac-Picat is told that he needs to stop searching for Lando. He calls the NRI Operations Center on Coruscant and asks to speak to Riken. Pac-Picat contests his orders and then requests leave so he can continue his search on his own in the Lady Luck. His request is denied. He says he's a Hortek. They never leave the bodies of comrades in the hands of the enemy. He asks to be counted among the missing from the mission so he can keep looking. Riken's like, no, no, don't do that. Fine, you can have your leave, but you can only take th up to three volunteers with you no one else. So, a few hours later, Pac Picat, Captain Bijo Hammocks, and Technical Agents Pleck and Tazden are in the Lady Luck as everybody else heads back to deal with the crisis in the Farlax sector. The NRI has pulled out as a sponsor of the Digit Kella, but the Dang it. <laughs> but the tab is now being picked up by a private trader named Drayson, who hopes to authenticate some Kella artifacts. Reinforcements have arrived at Malfa Obex, the Kella planet. Ending I, Lando's section. I was bummed about this storyline not getting very much out of it. Like, I wanted them to have found something on the Kella planet by the time Lando's section wrapped, and they basically found nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they found the possibility of something. <sighs> they at least got there, and they confirmed that it's still an ice ball, and everyone's still dead. And that there are bodies that they can sample. Yay. Goody. 
That's what every girl wants. Bodies she can sample. Really? <laughs> News to me. Gross. <laughs> so now we will leave Lambda behind until Tyrant's Test. Sad. And we will turn our attention to Luke and Akana. Boo. The Mud Sloth leaves Lukasek at top speed, which is about five miles per hour. <laughs> you gotta go faster than that to clear the gravity well. Okay, okay, ten. <laughs> Akana asks Luke, to make the ship go faster. They are worried about the Imperial agents that they had dealt with in the last book. Imperial, quote unquote. Luke asks where to go next, but Akana says she will not say until they're in hyperspace. Akana, Luke needs a heading to point the ship towards. Just do a short jump to yeah, anywhere. Basically. She's afraid of listening devices that have been planted on the outside of the ship. And Luke asks if she trusts him. And she says, I know you to be a good man, but some of what you do and believe makes me uncomfortable. In the long run, I have never known a warrior or a soldier to be a friend. And Luke says, I, I'm, I'm not a soldier, though. His lightsaber is used only to protect people, not to attack. And he, he convinces her, and she's like, fine, we're going to tear. Spelled T-E-Y-R. She's not sure if the circle is still there, but it is what the message said. It's also one of the worlds where another of the circle's children was sent to, so feels like a very good strong lead to her. Luke looks to see if he can allow them to jump out of the flight control zone early. He's successful, and they can now jump much sooner. However, he wants to test it, so they'll still wait most of the three days before jumping, which shouldn't draw any unwanted attention. Yeah, basically, there's some kind of device inside that he's able to do hickey. Something, something, spaceships. <laughs> they talk about the fight and the men that Luke killed, and he says he tried to save one of them. But the one he killed had a shield, and it made it difficult to not kill him in the moment. What mattered more to him was protecting her. And she said she was fine after the fact, but Luke says she didn't look it in the moment. Akana then asks him to never kill again to save her life, and he says he's not sure he can make that promise. I felt very strongly in this section that Luke doth protest too much. He had all of these excuses about why he had to kill that guy. And why he had to react so aggressively. And he still, like, maintains all of these excuses about, like, well, I didn't kill the other one, and this one was hard to not kill. Like, he made it so easy for me to kill him because his shield requires a lot of force to overcome. And by the time I got to the other side of the shield, it was hard to direct where I was going to stab him with my laser sword. Like, okay. You just, like... I would respect him a lot more if he could just admit, you know, like, I reacted in the heat of the moment. It looked bad. They seemed like Imperial agents. They were aggressive. I was trying to protect you, and that part he did say. But, like, instead it felt like he couldn't get out of his own way. That's fair. But I also agree with Luke that he can't make the promise to not kill to save her. Oh, yeah, I think that's, that's dumb. That's absurd. I mean... Sorry, no offense if you're a super-duper pacifist. I just don't get it. There comes a point, and this is, I think, one of the themes of Star Wars, there are times you have to fight back. If everybody else was a pacifist when the Empire went marching through the galaxy, they're, like the Empire would be incredibly powerful and enslave everyone, and... Unfortunate, but yeah. Like, it just doesn't... It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Akana asks Luke if the Jedi are to be the New Republic's warrior elite, and he says no. If they are asked to fight, each Jedi can say yes or no. It's their individual choice. They are not mercenaries. 
Akana asks him if he cannot have both peace and justice, which would he choose? Luke avoids the question and asks what she would choose. Akana says she'd keep these gifts beyond the reach of politicians and generals, which is also kind of a non-answer. Luke says that he's been careful to protect their independence despite appearances. They have not sworn any vows to the Republic, except for the few who have chosen to be in the military. Hi, Corrin. <laughs> who is... By now, Corrin has been created because Rogue Squadron's out, but he's not a, he's far from being a Jedi in terms of the publishing cycle. In terms of this timeline, he obviously has trained at Yavin 4. The Jedi aren't the Republic Guard, Luke asserts, and they never will be. Good luck keeping that promise. Yeah, I mean, based on like the inklings that I have about the future of Legends from here, I don't think that ends up holding up. I would call them the New Republic Guard, but they're going to be... Strongly aligned with the New Republic? Yeah. Like, simply cannot be helped? Yeah. I think any trap for a Jedi, whether this is old or New Republic, is the more you get involved, the more dangerous it is as to be a Jedi. And Palpatine saw that and exploited that. But it had started long before Palpatine came along. Yeah. Because it's just, it's an easier way to try and help things when you are more involved. Also, neither of their arguments make sense here. Akana says she would keep the powers, basically, beyond the reach of politicians and generals. So what, your life is just continuously hiding and running forever? That is what they do, yes. Eventually your gifts die out that way. And like clearly that is I I think that that's clearly happening with the white current. And not just that, but if you have these gifts, these amazing gifts, but you're not using it to do anything or help people. They they actually remind me, I think I said this before, of, of the Genosarian I Jedi. They're they're so focused locally and not on a broader scope, which isn't a bad thing, depending on how many and what you can actually do. It's not bad to focus only local, obviously. But for the Genosari, they focus local to the extent that actually act and actively hurt others because of that. For the Falanasi, we don't really have a sense of... They're not focused locally. They're so focused on their, like, pure ideology that they have removed them... Like, they say they're part of the white current. They have removed themselves from the current of actual life. Yeah. Like, we say that one of the flaws of the Jedi is getting too involved, but there's also the flaw of being not involved enough. So dissociated. Which is what Luke was doing at the start of before the storm yeah like there's there's a very delicate balance to find here and i think it's an interesting issue for any force user to to, to struggle with luke tells akana about his ability to disguise himself in the force and demonstrates it for her it takes a bit of work but she's eventually able to see through it she wants to be able to find him if they get separated even if he's in disguise reasonable they get to the yellow zone of the flight control zone and jump to hyperspace and everything works just fine as they near Tyr, Luke asks Akana if there was a date attached to the message, and she says no. He then asks if she could tell how long the message had been there, and she also says no and asks why. And Luke just wonders how and why two Imperial agents would hide for so long in an area where everyone knew each other. Like, this is a Midwest small town type feel, basically. Why would they be expecting her? He's, he's just trying to get his mind around what happened. Akana says that she's been asking questions for a long time, and she wasn't always as careful as she is now. She'd check ticket prices, ask around at the spaceport, etc. She learned to be more discreet as she aged. So basically that she probably messed up at some point, which is why they were watching for her, and that's a pretty good response. It still feels a little weird, but... Yeah, and now that I'm 
reading these notes with fresher eyes, as in, like, I've been through the whole book. I wonder if these quote-unquote Imperial agents, because we're not totally convinced they are Imperial. Luke assumed they were. Are actually originating from Karatos and her life there and those questionable circumstances that she reveals to Luke later. Could be. Because that's a lot more recent. Like, that's within the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. If she was indiscreet 10 years ago, like, why would anyone figure that out now and park themselves in this dumb town? For 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Soon after landing, Akana says they aren't here anymore. It's not their kind of world. It's far too crowded, too loud, too organized, and artificial. Sounds a little like Coruscant, actually. But, but, like, right before they got there, she was like, I'm sure that they're there. I'm yeah. certain of it. And then as soon as they land, she's like, they're not here. I can tell. But Luke says it's too soon to give up and asks where to start. So she says the city of Grian. That's where the kids were taken. She apparently had a couple of letters exchanged with the one other child, uh, Nori, one of her friends. When they are close to Grian, Akana realizes that Luke still has his lightsaber with him. She asks how he got it through the security scanner. He says that it's a weapon so rare, only one model of scanner is programmed to recognize it, and Tyr doesn't use it. Most scanners identify it as a shaver, which technically it could be if you were very careful and very skilled. I've always loved this detail as well. <laughs> just goes through the scanner just fine. Oh, it's just a weird looking razor. Ha- nothing to do, nothing to see. And then it looks like, yeah, I actually could do that. <laughs> Akana wishes he hadn't brought it and reminds him of what she asked of him. Luke remembers, but he also says that he's made no promises. Akana says, is there that much pleasure in killing that it becomes something difficult to give up? Luke asks why she thinks he takes pleasure in killing. And Akana says he must since he won't renounce it. If she'd caused a million deaths, she'd never touch a weapon ever again and doesn't know how he can. Luke has no immediate answer. And then he says one million 205,109. Not counting the droids, that's the number of people he killed on the first Death Star. He then says sometimes enemies don't give you a choice in the matter. She says the past is fixed and unalterable. She cares what he'll do today and tomorrow instead. Was this the section where Luke reveals that he, not necessarily to Akana, but internally he reveals that he never knew the actual number until a museum display years later? I think so, yes. Like post-war? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I can believe him not knowing the exact number. But like a ballpark number yeah. surely would have been talked about. And I, I think by the time of Return of the Jedi Truths about Kura, he would have a pretty good idea because at that point he would be thinking about that, I feel like. Yeah. So this doesn't make sense. <laughs> Unless he went to a museum around the time of Return of the Jedi. But it was implied that it was post-war. Yeah. Like, nobody in an Imperial era, nobody's putting up a museum display about, and this many Imperial troops were killed on the Death Star. Actually, thinking back to the Rogue Squadron series, they could have, because of the propaganda they had up, like, say, this many heroes lost their lives here. The Empire would never paint it that way, though. They would never skew it such that the Rebellion got such a big one over on them. They would say something more like, The Death Star was a prototype anyway. It was crewed by a skeleton crew. The Rebellion thought that they won this huge victory, but actually we have this other prototype that's going to be so much better. You know, like, I don't think that they would put the propaganda that way. Okay. Luke asks Akana if she's afraid of him because of his lightsaber, and she says she supposes she is, but she doesn't want to be. Luke says he won't hurt her. He brought for surprises not to threaten her. 
Anaconda says, I moved through the world without one. Why can't you? Luke says he can't give up the lightsaber as long as he's a Jedi. It's a part of him, an extension of his will. A lightsaber is almost always used for defense, and when he does kill, he has to be up close and personal. He has to look them in the eye. A blaster is more efficient and faster, but that's not the goal of the Jedi. This is another of those conversations where I think both of them do make valid points. I totally get where Akan is coming from, and I do think we need to strive more for nonviolence, or at least more non-killing solutions when possible. But to me, Luke is ultimately right, because sometimes you don't have a choice. With the Death Star about to wipe out the Rebellion and then rain terror across the galaxy, what else could he do? But he's also changed since then, and more often than not, seeks the non-violent approach when he can. But he's still forced to fight because of circumstances. I think it's not that there's no choice. It's that the alternative is just like laying down and letting them roll over you. Yeah, the, the alternative <laughs> or is Or like so much hiding worse. and abandoning all of the people that you've sworn to protect. Like, those people are all going to die because of your actions also. Isn't that a version of killing? <laughs> yeah. Like. Exactly. Like there's, like I said earlier, a theme of Star Wars is when to fight. And it's something that Luke struggles with. And he and the rest of the Jedi will always struggle with, I think. And they should because of their power and what can happen to them if they go too far in one direction or the other. They get to Grion. Akana has an address for her friend Nori. They get to it, but there's no building there. There are just several empty lots. Akana cries out in anguish. Luke says, you're going to keep looking. This just means they aren't here. A middle-aged man sees them and asks what's wrong. And he tells them a cyclone came through here about nine years ago and destroyed several houses. So, a little too late, Akana. Sorry. After he leaves, Luke asks Akana if there's any writing to be read, but there's not because there's no structure. Luke says there should be records of what happened. They are able to get the last known address of Trobe Sar, who was Nori's custodian. Akana is feeling confident again that this one won't be a disappointment. Kelplath is a Falanasi name, which is part of the address that they're given. Luke wonders about Nashira and why she never came for him or Leia. He's worried that Leia is right and he won't like the truth. Probably. Luke then sees an Eloman for a second time here, and he's pretty sure this isn't a usual vacation spot for that species. They get to Kelplath, and it has been renamed to River Gardens. It's a commonal with a droid guard outside. And they try and get time, the droid's like, no, you can't. <laughs> and the droid won't tell them anything about anyone because this is a very private property. So they try and walk around the wall, but the droid spots them and tells them to go away. Or they'll be arrested. (laughs) They walk away, and Akana tells Luke to stop after a little bit. She has to go back alone. She'll use the technique she used to sneak up on him in Vader's fortress. Luke still isn't sure what or how she did that, and isn't thrilled with her going back alone. He asks what can he do, and she says there will be no one who needs to be killed, so just wait for her and don't attract any attention. She thinks that's such a sick burn. Yeah, she does. And I think she's a child. In some ways, yeah. <laughs> Akana returns 20 minutes later and says they need to go. Luke asks what she saw, but she will not tell him until it's safe. But Luke did some research while Akana was gone. The common all was sold so that the people who owned it originally could buy a starship called the Star Morning. He can contact the New Republic and find out where the ship went, and she says that that's not necessary because they're going to Terry. As they leave the planet, Luke pays attention to traffic to see if anyone is following them, and Akana asks why he bothers. No one saw her when she went inside. He says he's just being cautious. There are a lot of enemies out there, including Dala. What now? Are you sure? <laughs> Akana says the New Republic could be one too. It was Luke 
who said they were Imperial agents on Lukazak. How does he know they weren't from the New Republic? And this kind of just stops Luke and makes him think because he did make that assumption. He doesn't know if anyone is shadowing them, but he just wants to make sure. He then sh- sees a ship registered to an alumna named Refka Trell, but doesn't tell Akana. Luke asks Akana what she knows of the planet, and she says, not much other than it's a free trader world. He asks if he can query Coruscant for a diplomatic backgrounder on the planet. She says there's a risk in ignorance, so it's his call if he wants to do more research. Luke has access to central data libraries and the highest grade security clearance a civilian can have, which he uses to ask for info on the Star Morning and the Mudsloth. He asks for the report on the Star Morning to be forwarded to him as soon as it's available, but for the report on the Mudsloth to wait until he calls back for it. I have a huge problem with this whole situation. Which part? I do not think that Luke should have this level of clearance at this point. He is outside of the structure of the New Republic. He was once a major player, but he claims that he wants to be separate from them, and he wants the Academy to be separate from them. I don't see why he needs the highest grade security clearance. For a civilian, yeah. He can have some modicum of clearance to a- that will help aid in his search for Force users. Yeah, I think an upgraded over a typical civilian is fine, but the highest level does feel like a bit much. Especially with nobody questioning him. He calls in, he gives his code, everyone's like, what can I do for you, sir? Oh, I'll pull that right away, sir. No. Like, there needs to be, if he has this level of clearance, which I still don't think he should have, somebody should be on the other end able to say, no, you can't have that. Because what if, you know, I don't know, Luke just goes dark side again, because he's prone to that, apparently, and calls in to ask for, I don't know, Like, what's the biggest, baddest fleet that we know of? Like, what's the biggest weapon that we have currently? Where is it? And what are the access codes? Like, there's a huge risk here. There is. I think that this was an oversight. And I also think that he could get information about these two things, the Star Morning and the Mudsloth, with a lower level of clearance. So it was not necessary for the story. It was not necessary for the plot to move forward. So it's completely unnecessary on multiple levels. I I did not like this. It made me feel squeamish. Sorry. (laughs) Like at least Han and Leia and Lando, even though he's kind of squirrely about it, have official positions that justify their clearance levels. Lando sometimes has official positions. That's why I said sort of. And also Han sometimes. (laughs) But like nobody's trying to pretend about those two that they're not scoundrels. You know, like Pac the Cat finds out that Lando's had his bio info erased three times and he's like, uh, once a smuggler, always a smuggler. <laughs> like everyone knows, but I don't know. I feel like this, this thing for Luke, it really rubs me the wrong way. It's the same as Luke being able to be like, Hey Leia, give me the sun crusher back because I want to impart an object lesson on my pupil. And she's like, sure, here you go. Like it rubs me the wrong way in that exact same way. <laughs> At least this one though, wasn't his like, the impression I get is he didn't ask for this, it was given to him probably by Akbar. And I'm like, Akbar, what are you doing? Like, most of Akbar's decisions in this series I really like. I agree, that's the one. Like That mm. and giving Luke this E Wing thing. That one made more sense to me because he wanted Luke to have some kind of fighter protection, especially after what happened in Darksaber. That doesn't make, it still doesn't make sense to me. The E Wing is like a cutting edge military grade prototype of a ship. Luke doesn't need, if he's really so powerful in the force, he doesn't need that. And 
it, I think it's out of character for Akbar to be offering these things to him. We already established in the Thrawn trilogy that once you um, resign your commission and get out of the military life, Akbar doesn't like you anymore. Agreed, <laughs> but I, I do think Luke would be an exception to that rule because to him, being a Jedi Knight is not the same, but similar enough. So maybe Akbar still likes him. I don't see him doing him all of these favors. That I agree with. It doesn't fit right for me for Akbar. Yeah. I, I, Kimi Goodell is a great help Akbar, except for in relation to Luke. <sighs> to some extent, we'll see later, too, that he's a little too open with total strangers, in my opinion. I understand his uh, his attachment to Plat Malar, but some of the stuff he does in that section, I get a little cringe about, okay. too. Like, I don't, I don't think the characterization is right. Anyway, Luke eventually gets a very thick file on the Star Morning. It has apparently had several other names, and it's still owned by Kelplath Corporation of Tyr. It has over 200 port stops, none more than three times, and most unique. The data is also clearly incomplete. Atzeri is not among any of the listed port stops. He also learns that the Star Morning got to Volvarch about 12 hours ago, and they could get there much more quickly than heading to Atzeri. Luke tells Akana about his findings, but she says the ship is not important. Atzeri is. I have to eat a little crow just before you go on, because I pr- purposefully pronounced Atzeri as Azteri somewhat earlier, like a few minutes ago, because I thought that you had spelled it wrong in the notes. I remembered it being Azteri. You're right, it is Azteri. <laughs> Whoops. Happens. <laughs> Star Wars names. They're bad. Like this Complicated. One, like this one. Volvarch. I invite you, listener, to just imagine how that's spelled and think about what word it resembles. Luke wants to go Volvarch, but is overruled. He then asks about calling the Star Morning. And Akana says, even if they are with the Circle, they would never reveal that fact over a long-distance comm call, and fair enough on that part. That seems right. I, I agree with Luke. Going to Volvarch makes a lot of sense, but I agree with Akana calling them from so far away probably a bad idea but i still don't trust her agreed i feel very suspicious the, of her. this is the part in the book where she starts i, I think it's actually when she goes to um leaves luke yeah that's the point where it really begins but this is the moment where i'm like oh you're really shady something's going on you're acting sus please stop <laughs> for the rest of the trip akana hangs around the pilot station and luke thinks it's to make sure he doesn't call the star, star morning but without her help he knows that he can't call them it also prevents from getting any info on the mud sloth. Sus. Luke also requested info on Atzeri and Tyr and other planet and several other planets, so if anyone's paying attention, they wouldn't know what he was really doing. But he kind of stuck this in. All the other worlds he asked for were where the Star Morning had also been to. He's getting to the spy game. With his exceptional clearance level that he shouldn't have. Luke asks how people become part of the circle. Akana says some are born into it and some come to it. How? They're always hiding. (laughs) She asks, aren't the Jedi like that? Luke asks if she means by blood to pass on. And she asks, is the gift not in the blood? Luke says sometimes it seems like the Force chooses its own. Students with no family history, species who have never been Jedi before, have been showing up to Yavin 4. Finally, we get a discussion about Force users and Luke says that's clearly more than blood. But... The only issue I have with this, he's always going on about, oh, I've got so little information on the Jedi before, right? How does he know what species aren't Jedi and weren't before? That's my only issue with this, yeah. but I'm so happy that someone is finally saying, and that's Luke especially saying, no, it's not just blood. People just get it somehow. 
Which fits so perfectly into the prequels. Yeah. He could have just added in the detail that, like, I have limited records, but of the records that I have, these species have not been generated yeah. before, and that would have made it perfectly fine. Akana then implies that the Jedi just, like, sort of slept around when they traveled through the galaxy, so, like, I, any of them could have sired, I don't know, hundreds. hundreds of children, and that's why there's no family history there. In a post-prequel world, this is hilarious to me. I mean, no attachment. And like I could one night like, only Qui Gon, oh yeah, oh yeah, him and Shmi definitely got it on. <laughs> but others, like Mace Windu, I don't think he ever did. I just don't think Mace Windu had an interest in that. Exactly, I, I don't think most did. I, think, I don't think we were exposed to any any Jedi who would have an interest in that. There's only one Jedi canonically I can think of that did, and that was Kiadi Mundi. Oh yeah, but that because was because of his special circumstances. I think it's like one in eight of his species is born male. So to essentially help to new species line he was allowed to marry. She also says that Luke could easily have a thousand children. Fair this, enough. This guy does not sleep with anybody that he has not already declared he will love for all time. Apart from Callista, has he slept with anyone? No. That's what I mean. Like, he only slept with Callista because he was emotionally already at third base. Like, with a ghost. With a ghost. <laughs> She says that rules are different for heroes and royalty, and he's seen as a bit of both. And looks like, I don't know how I could be a father to one child, much less a thousand. And I, I very much appreciate that I response. I have only slept with a ghost. <laughs> I have not sired any children. <laughs> also, this really, her little theory here really implies that, like, the male Jedi yeah. slept around. Because very clearly, female Jedi, like... If you're assuming a male-female species. Sure, yes. I was about to say, like, this is very gendered of me, but let's face it, Star Wars in that era was very gendered. So, Still is most of the time. Like, the male Jedi got to go do whatever they wanted to do. A female Jedi would have to, like, live with the visual consequence. And then what? Do they just, like, give up their the child that they birthed into, like, the creche at the Jedi Temple? Or, like, if they're, like, a reptilian Jedi might just lay an egg type thing and walk away. (laughs) Just lay an egg and walk away. I don't know. Oh, it's so weird. (laughs) Luke asks Akana why she didn't go to Lukazek years ago. It's easier to buy passage than a ship. And she says she almost did, but she realized that if she got to Lukazek, she'd just be poor on Lukazek instead of where she was, the way to get off planets. And where she was, there was at least, you know... She had a life. She could make some money. Lukazek is a poor planet with nothing going for it. She would be trapped there probably forever. The ship is all she has, along with a few credits. Luke then asks why she came to him first before setting out. When she dreamed of returning to Ialtra on Lukazek, he was always there with her, she says. She knew he must be supposed to be with her. Okay. They land on Adzeri. Akana says she must go alone to approach the Falanasi. If they are there, she must approach them alone or they'll just clam up. Luke isn't thrilled with this and asks for her location in case something goes wrong. She says she's going to the Pembelhof district north of the park, but to give her three days before coming after her. To pass the time, Luke showers, tinkers, meditates, but only six hours have passed. He's like, ah, dang it. (laughs) So he decides to do some exploring, but doesn't take his lightsaber. He sees all kinds of things being sold and ignores most of it. And then someone claims to be selling the lost secrets of the Jedi. And he's like, all right, fine, I'll buy it. Even though he's sure there's not much to it. 
On his way back to the ship, he sees a club called Jabba's Throne Room, and curiosity drives him inside. He orders some food and starts to read. He hears people talking about a possible war with the Yavetha. One wants it, the other doesn't. One of them says if a single fleet pilot dies there, the princess should be put on trial for murder and treason. So this actually is a conversation I was referencing earlier that reminded me of conversations I had had before the Iraq war. Of This, this is a much longer question of the book. Of like, you know, should we go? Should we not go? Are, is it right for us to go there, et cetera, et cetera? You know, are we a police state kind of thing? <laughs> are we a police state? <laughs> In terms of like going to other places. Like it, it, just, it very much reminded me of early 2000s. Yeah. Post 9-11. And I was like, this feels weirdly prescient. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Luke asks for a news record and is given one. He heads back to the ship to read what's been going on in the galaxy during his absence. And on another note, Luke is starting to get worried because Akana has been gone for 16 hours. But he resists the urge to grab his lightsaber and run off after her. Akana gets to Atrium 41. She is looking for someone named Jorab Goss. She finds him and says that she's his daughter. Her mother was Isela Tosava Narand, but she's dead now. Jorab says he doesn't know that name. She then tells the story of how the two met. And then he says he has no memory of the story, and she asks, why not? How do you, how, how do you not remember this? He says he's developed a fondness for Rock Blue. It's a poison for a tree fungus that grows in Endor. But it's not as deadly as people think. As long as you take it in incredibly small amounts... It puts you into an inquisitive state of bliss. <laughs> but it demands a price. His memories don't go back for more than a year. Therefore, everything is new to him. And she kind of has this look of almost pity on her face. And he says, no, no, no. Don't pity me. I have chosen to live in a vivid presence. He says that she may be his daughter, but he is not her father. Yikes. Kind of a reverse Anakin Vader moment here. <laughs> sort of. It's pretty dark and grim i guess i mean imagine you i've been searching for a long lost parent and this is what you find i mean if i was searching for a parent who had never been in my life anyway my expectations would be very low yeah but i think this would be even below those nah no but i'm a naturally cynical person so fair enough akana returns 22 hours after she left she tells luke the circle isn't here and they can go he wants to see the writing, but she declines to take him. Of course, there was no writing. Yeah. There was no circle here. Yeah. He says she should take a shower. She'll feel better. She takes one and does feel better, but she still refuses to take Luke back to where she was or tell him what she saw. Losing the argument, they get in the mud sloth and head out. While Luke does the piloting, Akana gets some rest. Before they enter hyperspace, Luke pulls up the report on the mud sloth, and I'm like, dude... Luke, she's been gone for 22 hours. You've had so much time. You were bored out of your mind. You didn't do this then? Too busy reading the fake Jedi text, I guess. Going to Jabba's palace. Yeah. Ogling <laughs> dancing girls. <laughs> he started to have doubts and, and suspicions about this adventure. Now it's taken you this long? Now, to be fair, Akana's been kind of suspicious, but this is the moment when it goes off the rails suspicious from his perspective, I do feel like, because yeah. we know what she just said. He has no idea, and she's acting very, you would say, sus. <laughs> As the kids would say, sus. Actually, that's probably gone out of the parlance again. Parlance. Records do show that Akana owns the ship, which relieves Luke. But, this is the part that worries him, 
travel log show that it hasn't actually left Coruscant. He's like, but we're clearly not there. And I think he has a moment of, am I in a dream state? Do we never leave? He's <laughs> very confused. And then he starts to wonder about the limits of her power to conceal things. When they left, she'd asked to cloak them, and he really didn't think anything of it, but now he's like, what did she do? What's like, going on? And then Luke sees something very interesting. Kana actually inherited this ship from her late husband, Andras Pell. Husband? What husband? We thought Luke was going to be your hubby. No. <laughs> I mean, we do have a moment coming up here that made me go, oh no, here we go again. These two are so incompatible. I know that they are, and yet um, Luke likes people who are incompatible with him only. <laughs> it's, his, it's his kink. <laughs> no kink shaming here. <laughs> I'm not shaming it, I'm just stating a fact. Uh-huh. Akana spends 10 hours asleep. Luke uses that time to read everything before him. He also does searches for the Fallen Asi and the White Current, and nothing returns. Even all of his clearance levels, nothing. He also sends a message to Yavin 4 to ask R2 and 3PO to go to the library at Obersky to do research for him. He eventually gets a response from Streen, but doesn't get a chance to read it. There was a really interesting note in the book about this library, like how old it was. Basically said that most of it had been cataloged because of just how much information is here. Yeah. So I thought it was a really cool Haven't thing. Haven't we heard about this library before? Mm-hmm. I believe this was, wasn't this where the lightsabers were found in Dark Empire? Yeah, I think so. It's a... It's one of those places in Star Wars that just kind of keeps popping up. Akana wakes up and sees that Luke has been doing some research. And before Luke can say anything, she knows what he's been looking for and what he has found. She then says her full name was Akana Norant Goss, but now it is Akana Norant Pell. Her husband Pell was 36 years her senior. He died and she got the ship. And there will be absolutely nothing about the Fallen Aussie or the White Current. And Luke's like, Did you just read my mind? How did you know all this? And she says she knew he would eventually check on her, though she thought it would happen sooner, so she had already done research on her own to see what was out there about herself, the White Current, and the Fallen Aussie. Smart girl. He asks how the sloth is still on Coruscant. She stopped at Golkis on the way to Luke and had someone alter the ship's ID transponder. She won't say his name, just that she believes he once worked with or for Talon Card. Nice name drop. Yeah. Well, isn't it, what's his name from the Thrawn trilogy? Ghent? Yeah. It could be. I assumed it was him, even though I can't remember his name. (laughs) He put a smuggler's kit on the transponder, whoever he is. Luke is impressed and annoyed. They didn't have to go so slowly with this transponder in place, so he asks why she didn't tell him. Akana says she wasn't ready to trust Luke with the info. She didn't know if she'd need to be able to hide from him at some point. But now, if she doesn't trust him, then she's completely alone, and she can't do that anymore. She also says that she's going to teach him what she can about the white current. So she's finally opening up, trying to be a little less suspicious. This made me more suspicious. Really? Because it's such a... It's such a manipulator's tactic, as soon as they see that you have something on them, to try and spin it. And be like, okay, now I'm ready to like bring you into the fold. I'm ready to tell you everything. And the whole time they're still withholding. I agree with you. But what I will say to that is, if we hadn't seen the scene of her with her father, I think that would have been my thought. But that, to me, that scene just broke her so much and she realized how alone she truly is. It's Luke or yeah. bust right now. I do, I do think she's not your classic manipulator, narcissist, abuser, whatever. But 
all of my internal warning bells were going off at this point because I felt like it was such a classic tactic. Yeah, I agree. She, she's not that. That also doesn't mean she's still telling the full truth. Yeah. And I don't think she is. I think there's still something she's withholding. Maybe, maybe many somethings. Safe bet. The look on your face. <laughs> and frankly, there, there are things she will do in the next book. I'm like, wow, lady, you are really suspicious. <laughs> okay. I wonder if she... This is just me talking to myself because I don't want you to answer this question. I wonder if she uh, reappears later in the EU again or if she exits after this series. My poker face is on. I know. Your poker face includes this very kind of smug attempt at not <laughs> smiling that inspires a kind of deep rage in me. <laughs> it's a face that whew, it tests me. Face that's won me some money and lost me some money over the years. <laughs> anyway, Luke still has questions, and she says, Well, ask them. He asks why there's no trace of the Falanasi. She says they hide themselves incredibly well, and the few times something about them does come up, they work to hide and remove that information. Sketchy, but also fair. If you're a hidden society, you don't want people to know about you. You don't want a Google search of Falanasi to turn up yeah. actually anything. He asks where they're going, and Akana says, Jatipatan. I hate that name. <laughs> That's why I said it, so that you wouldn't have to. Thank you. I threw myself on the grenade for you. <laughs> <laughs> on the apostrophes. <laughs> <laughs> I threw myself on the apostrophes for you. <laughs> he looks it up and can't find the planet in the navigational database. Luke queries Coruscant and is given the coordinates. It's incredibly far away, and it's in the Kornacht cluster. Ruh-roh, we have the tie-in, ding-a-ling-ling. Sort of. I mean, we already knew they were in there because of what we'd previously seen before the storm. Yeah, it's all just going to be proximity. Proximity is going to be the only tie-in between all of these plot lines. <laughs> we'll see. The news shows that it's a planet that has not been attacked yet by the Yavetha. That's good. I don't know why I said yet. They may or may not in the future be attacked by the Yavetha. We'll find out. Akana then tells Luke that they came to Adzeri under false pretenses. Mm -hmm. The circle, she says, was never here. She came here to see her father. She was worried her father could be someone she didn't respect, which is why she didn't tell Luke about him. Luke says he understands. It's honestly how he thinks Leia feels about their mother. Mm. Luke says Leia wants to protect her memories from reality. And Akana asks why it's different for Luke. And he says that he doesn't have any memories to protect. He has no memory of his mother. He just wants to know. He's not worried about being disappointed. Luke then asks Akana if she found her father. And she says yes. And she tells Luke everything she, she heard. The Endor fungus, etc., etc. She then says her father is dead. Someone else lives in his body. And she will never speak to that person again. If she cannot find the circle, she will always be alone. Luke then hugs and comforts Akana as she cries. Slight correction. They're like snuggling in the bunk together i think she was there and then crying he went over to no he was gonna go take a nap and then invites her to come that's right yeah that was the point at which i was like oh, please let's not do this again these two people have zero chemistry <laughs> why are you putting them together like this and that ends the luke and Akana section Woo. lots of questions hanging Nothing has been, no progress has been made. I, we had more progress in the Lando section. Like in this, this was a side trip to learn about her father. And also we, of course, got the stuff with Nori and the compound and Star Morning, but they really are not 
getting very They've, far. like, found some leads, but, like, we're not resolving anything here. Yeah. It's been a very slow-moving middle book. Nil returns to Nazoth as more than a hero, but somewhat less than a god. His aide, Eri Pale, tells him how much the people yearn to show their devotion to him. He is driven through a crowd of people, and they cheer wildly. Nil tells his driver to stop, and he steps out. He points at someone randomly and asks if they will give their blood for him. They are surprised, but say yes. Nil tells him to approach, cuts him symbolically, and has him walk behind the car. Nil then points at a random woman, or female of the species, I guess, and asks if she will give her birth cask to him. She walks forward, he claims her, and then she walks behind the car. Yeah, this was a really this weird, was weird. scene. <laughs> the the Yvetha are... I'm uh, like, I'm at a point with the Yvetha where I'm like, I don't want to know more about you. I don't need to know more about you. I don't like what I know about you. <laughs> that's fair. The fifth fleet exits hyperspace a half light year away from the Kornacht cluster. The Yvetha knew they were coming, but there is no one there. And a bot wishes they were here so he could at least get a look at the fleet that is, they'll be facing. A bot sends a message to Akbar recommending that some of the ships be sent to Galantos, Wetam, and each other new protectorate to show the Yvetha they are being protected. He also asks for more ships to be sent to him, especially interdictors. Meanwhile, Han brings the family to the beach. There's a beach on Coruscant. Apparently, there's many beaches on Coruscant. Yeah, this is different than Luke's beach with Vader Fortress. I don't know. He's trying to get Leia's mind off of everything that's going on, but Akbar has called her with an update. Senator Tuami has raised objections to Leia's credentials. As a refugee of Alderaan, which is not a state, she cannot be president of the Senate. Maybe you should have thought of that seven years ago or whatever. Han asks, wasn't this issue resolved when the Provisional Council was dissolved? Interesting. Leia says too many of the new members want to have their say. She's expecting more calls, so Han grabs her comlink and throws it into the water. <laughs> he says she's given it enough. Just give them, their family, a little time. Leia then has a realization that she's actually been on Coruscant longer than she was on Alderaan, which, that's rough to think about. And Han asks if she's been to the... Is that true, though? She hasn't been on Coruscant for 18 years. She's been here for about 12-ish years, and I don't think she was on Alderaan for all 18 years. No? She was a member of the Imperial Senate, so she's probably on Coruscant before A New Hope uh, for a while. That's true. That was even established in A New Hope. Children of the Jedi as well, that she spent time on Coruscant witnessing yeah. Palpatine's weird harem. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> it's a little close, but I think it's pretty, probably pretty close to even split right now. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Han then asks, has she been to the Ice Crypts, the Tropical Garden, or the Calrac Amphitheater? And Leia's like, no, I haven't been to those places. Han then says, she knows Imperial City, but she doesn't know the planet. And Leia agrees. She's never been to Disneyland and Coruscant. As Anakin runs up to them, Leia thanks Han for this trip. The, the In this section, the Provisional Council being dissolved, being brought up, was interesting for me. Because I've complained in the past about how the Provisional Council chose Leia to replace Mon Mothma. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was not a democratic yes. process. So the Provisional Council was dissolved. It sounds like from this section that she was re-elected by a greater body. By the I'm Senate, yeah. assuming the Senate. They don't go to deals, but I, I appreciate the author at least gives us something about that. And yeah. the more you read both this book and the next one as well is clear the Senate are the ones who did elect her. Okay. Yeah. 
it makes me feel better that that eventually happened. But I mean, it does make sense when you're still early on in the process for a smaller group to, especially with such a large galaxy, to make a few decisions. And then once you things are a little more settled, like I, I get why it was as done that way. As long as you way. have a long-term plan. And they did. Just The problem is that it was never clear exactly what that long-term plan Like, no one yeah. ever spelled it out in the books, and I would have liked that. Yeah. I'm certain that, like, authors at the time were like, our audience does not care about this information. And, you know... There's a Venn diagram of Star Wars fans <laughs> who love Star Wars. And then there's the Venn diagram like with people who love Star Wars and want it to be consistent and want the lore to be solid. And then there's the group who's that, but also will show every little bloody detail. And that's yeah. me. And like that's where we live. <laughs> yeah. Us and like 16 other people. Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. <laughs> yeah. You said it backwards. It's oh. me. Hi. <laughs> I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> I don't think I'm a problem, though. Hot take. <laughs> I think I'm right. <laughs> You're not a problem. I'm a problem, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just not going to comment. <laughs> I'm going to stay very still and hope that it passes. <laughs> Akbar learns that Plat Malar has come out of the Bacta tank and was briefly conscious. Akbar goes to sit by his bedside while he sleeps. I what? can't believe you have time to do that, Akbar. I feel like you have more important stuff to take care of. <laughs> Leia heads to the general ministry, and she didn't tell anyone she'd be there today. So she was like, wait, what? Wh- why? What are you doing here? Can What's I get, going on? Can I get your staff? Can I get so-and-so? Can I get whatever? And she's like, no, no, no. She just says, give me all the emergency petitions for membership and an endorsement tablet, and I'm going to get to work. And love this. Malar wakes up, and Akbar is there. A little creepy, but... Yep. Akbar tells Malar... there a fish standing over me? Oh, my God. <laughs> Akbar tells Millar that he's on Coruscant. He's confused. The last thing he can remember was flying away from Paul and I. Akbar will tell him everything when he's ready to hear it, but today Millar starts to live again. Akbar will help him, and Millar asks who Akbar is. Akbar just says he's an old star pilot. I mean, that's not untrue. It's just a serious understatement. Yes. <laughs> there have apparently been 23 emergency requests for membership. 18 from Farlax and 5 from elsewhere. Leia approves Galantos first and then all the rest. She then tells Minister Philanthus that she's done the right thing. Now comes the hard decisions. Malar asks Akbar why the doctor called him an admiral. Akbar says, Dr. Yintal is unusually respectful for a doctor. <laughs> Malar then asks how he's going to pay for 16 days in a back to tank. Akbar tells him not to worry, consider it a gift from the New Republic. The author grew up in capitalism, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically in American capitalism, where our healthcare I mean, system is the worst. Who didn't grow up in capitalism? Well, American capitalism is what I mean. Ah. Other people have better healthcare than we do. That's true. <laughs> Millar asks about Paul Nye. Akbar says Millar's report was the last one that they received from there, and that Millar may be the only survivor. Millar asks who did it, and Akbar says it was the Yavetha, but Millar doesn't even actually know who the Yavetha are. So, like, People are in the corner cluster. I have no idea that the other were already there. Because, you know, it's very small for space, but it's still space. Things are still pretty spread out. Yeah. And, like, I think it's hard to remember sometimes in Star Wars that your average denizen of the galaxy is not flying around to different planets all the time. Yeah. Most people still live the way that we do. They live on, like, one world, or maybe they immigrate to another world during their life. They just have a speeder. Yeah. Robot dog. Yeah. 
So like they're not thinking about like who are my closest galactic neighbors. <laughs> If those people don't come by regularly, which the Yavetha certainly did not because no. they hate the vermin. Or like maybe Polnai would know other colonies near them, but again, it wouldn't be Yavetha colonies. Near other them, imperial colonies yeah, or, since Polnai was an imperial world. Yeah, like there were, I think it was, was it Bith had a colony somewhere out here or something like that? Yeah. There were a number of species that were listed and maybe Polnai knew about them probably. Yeah. Or like they would know a world close to them that they got a lot of supplies from. Yeah. Or like Malar is also random person. It's like the leadership probably knows about the Avetha, but yeah. why would, you know, Joe why, Rando know? Why would he know? Malar asks if the new Republic will do anything. And Akbar says that decision is in the hands of the civil government. It's not easy to rally democracy to war unless attacked directly, but he thinks the Republic will do the right thing. And Malar then says he will volunteer to join the pilot corps when he's released from the hospital. He wants to fight. And, I really appreciate what Akbar says about how hard it is to get a democracy to work. It's very true. But I also like that he thinks that the new Republic will do the right thing in the end because it, it, he is right. It should be, it is, and it should be hard for a democracy to go to war. That's one of the points of a democracy, but it also should be so impossible that it won't go to the occasion when it's needed. And he believes it's needed. Yeah. I mean, I think Akbar feels very strongly that the Yavetha pose a threat to the galaxy that is similar to the Imperial threat. It's a threat of oppression, of tyranny, of, like, monstrous proportions. Oh, yeah. There's a really great line, actually, from Abbott in the Tyrant's Test all about how dangerous he thinks the Avetha is, are. And it, I think it matches up really well what Akbar thinks. Yeah. Leia meets with Ben Kilnam, a.k.a. Benny. He says that she's safe for the moment. She has the support of five of the seven council chairs on the ruling council. Borsk is, of course, one of the two who oppose her. The other is Chairman Rudagagic, though they are not on the same side together because Borsk is never on anybody's side. Yeah. He says if Leia is too aggressive and pushing for war, two or three could change their mind and then the Senate would get to vote on whether or not she will stay in power. So basically the ruling council is there to one function, recall the president if they think she's or they've done something bad or gone too far. And if they say, okay, you've gone too far and vote this way, then it goes to the Senate to decide. And it has to be specifically, she has done something that, like, violates her charter. Yeah. It can't just be they don't like her. Although Borsk would try and finagle out if he could. Yeah. But he knows that he can't, so he's not going to. Benny also says that Senator Tuomi's no longer a worry. Chairman Bruce has squashed it under a procedural mountain. <laughs> Most of the public are indifferent to the deaths and suffering of strangers far away, which I feel is fair and reasonable, honestly. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know about fair or reasonable. I just feel like it's realistic. realistic. Like, it's hard for something like that to feel real until it's happening to you or your family. Or, your or even when it has happened to someone else, you can be very sorry for it. But what can you do about it type thing? Because it's so far away. And there's also a survival mechanism here. It hasn't happened to us yet. Why would we go get involved and have it happen to us? <laughs> Leia wants to drive the Yavetha back to Nazoth and put a planetary interdictor over them with a 1,000-year timer, but she knows that that won't happen. Love that idea. <laughs> Love it. Because of Paramus and Nil, she knows the push for war can't come from her because they've politically tied her hands. Benny says Platmalar could be a symbol for the cause, but Leia says she won't use him that way or exploit his tragedy in that way. 
very much appreciate that. Yeah. Leia finally making some... She feels much more herself in the final two books of this series. Yeah. Drayson and Abbott talk, and Abbott asks, what's going on back in Coruscant? There has been silence since he requested additional resources. And Drayson says that politicians are just moving very slowly. And Abbott says the fleet's presence accomplishes nothing. The Avetha know they are here and know they are an empty threat. Drayson says that Leia needs more evidence to attack and suggests that Abbott put a ferret in Zone 19. Because Drayson still has, you know, information out everywhere, <laughs> as he does. Eyes. Eyes and ears. He also suggests sending ships to other systems. And Abbott says he has nothing large enough left to withstand an attack by the Avetha. And then realizes that Drace is suggesting exactly that. Send a smaller force that is essentially a sacrifice, which will cause the New Republic to be forced to fight back. Because they'll be provoked. Attacked. Abbott says he won't sacrifice people needlessly, but he will send a pair to Zone 19. And I am very much with Abbott on this one. But I totally get where Drace is coming from. The only way to force the Republic into this conflict is for them to be attacked and lose people. It's an incredibly dark thing to think about and suggest, but I'm very glad that Abbott does not make that decision. Again, I, I get where Drace is coming from, and if I was in his position, I I might want a similar thing. Like things are moving so slowly, and they're going to until we are actually actively attacked. But I like that Abbott's like I will not just sacrifice people. Yeah, I really liked Abbott as a character. I feel like he 100 percent has the measure of the Avetha already at oh, yeah. this point. He's like, they know that we're here and they know that it's an empty threat. So this is all pointless. But I also like that he has like, it feels like he has a code, which is very important in somebody in this position in fiction. Cause they can so easily just feel like a tyrant or incompetent or dumb. <laughs> yeah. I also like the fact that this is a new leader, a new imp- military leader. Like yeah. the only new military leader we've really gotten in the EU that we've liked or that seemed competent was um, Garm back in the Thrawn trilogy. Oh, yeah. Like, since then, I feel like most of the military leaders on the Republic we've seen, we knew from the movies. Like, right, a small role in the movies, but still appearing throughout. So it's, it's nice to see a new one introduced since Garm. Because I really think that was the last one, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's all been familiar faces through, like, Callisto's stuff. Uh, the X-Wing books. The Jedi Academy trilogy. Yeah. Or if there were new faces, they just weren't POV. Um, General Psalm. Mm-hmm. He was a new one. We liked him. And the X-Wing Yeah, books. eventually liked him. <laughs> you had the comment, he doesn't know he's in Star Wars. <laughs> we eventually, it's a, he, he took a while to warp to as did a bot, but in the end we ended up really liking him as well. Yeah. So the, there's nothing, but it's, they're few and far between. I, I, I like bringing yeah. in characters like this. A bot and Pack the Cat. Yeah, he was another one who took a really long time to warm up to. Not really long, just a book. <laughs> I mean, a bot I was looking in the first book. I felt like I came around on Pack the Cat by the end of the first book. Fair, but I, a bot was faster for me. Okay. Malar is released from the hospital and goes to fleet headquarters, but tells Akbar to not come with him. He goes in, but comes out an hour later, rejected to volunteer for active duty. Akbar goes in to figure out why Millar was rejected. He's told that Millar is not qualified, his education program is not listed in the system, and he's not a New Republic citizen. In fact, Paul Nye is still listed as aligned with the Empire. Akbar calls it bureaucratic nonsense and also calls someone a dunderhead. <laughs> <laughs> and he asks, whatever happened to taking the measure of a man's courage, his honor, the fight in him, and the reasons in his heart? 
Do they all have to be as stamped and pressed alike as stormtroopers to get your approval? <laughs> Akbar's really throwing hands in here. I love this. <laughs> Akbar is told there have to be standards. And Akbar says, Major, ask yourself how many of the everyday heroes of the rebellion, not just the names everyone knows, would have qualified to fight for their freedom under your rules. And then ask yourself if that answer doesn't make you look just a bit like a Dubax cloaca. <laughs> I totally get and understand where the New Republic is coming from in this. You do need standards. But and they do need to be citizens of your country. But I love Akbar's response so much. Despite his years in the Republic, he's still a rebel at heart. And sometimes, frankly, that's what's needed. Yeah, I feel like... Also, his insults are just legendary. Really he felt a little off the wall here and a little out of character, but I think that's actually because I feel like I'm seeing a character arc happen here for Akbar without actually getting a lot of it on the page. It feels like because of the crisis that they're undergoing right now and because of him and Leia kind of having a fallout and all this stuff, he's having a kind of like crisis of purpose or meaning. Like, he feels like he, you know, spent all these years and fought all this time for this this thing to be birthed and to exist. And now it doesn't even serve the purpose that he thinks it should. I, I don't feel like we're getting a lot of his internal. No, we're not stuff, which is why it falls a little bit short of being a totally meaningful character arc for me. But I do feel like that's why he's so off the wall with this random lieutenant. <laughs> After Akbar leaves, he does feel a little bit foolish by his outburst. And- yeah. Yeah. And he should. (laughs) Malara has apparently already left and didn't wait for Akbar. So, Akbar goes to Leia, and he asks, am I still welcome here? And Leia asks if he really thought he might not be welcome here. And he says, we have not had a chance to talk since you returned, and we only spoke once while you were away. I have been afraid to try my key again. Which is very sad. Leia tells him his key works again and that she can't stay angry at him for long. And even when she is angry at him, she still needs to listen to him and says that she's missed him. Aww. Good. Good job. And then this might be my favorite thing that Akbar does in this book. He brings Leia another emergency petition to sign. This one for Polnai to join the New Republic. <laughs> Leia just kind of raises her eyebrow at him, but signs it. <laughs> like, there's one guy left from this planet, <laughs> and but- he's here and willing to represent it, so... So Akbar had his tirade. He's like, all right, fine, I'll play by your rules. Gets him to be a citizen. Belezeboth Orn had been given a transceiver to contact Nil. He sent a message five hours ago and is getting restless waiting for a response. He wants the money that Nil had promised him for the damage caused when Nil left Coruscant. Nil eventually calls him back and says, it seems their people will soon be at war. Orn says, not his people. There are no... Hakwapori citizens in the armed forces. He says the fleet is nothing but bluster and the princess doesn't have the support to use it. So here's one of those many people. So when Nil t- took off last book, there were there was a lot of damage caused to other ships in the area and even some people died. And apparently, Orn was one of them and Nil had talked to Orn and he knew what was going to happen. And I was like, don't worry about it. We got you, buddy. We'll take care of you. We'll cover it later. <laughs> because apparently Nil is so trustworthy and the New Republic government is not. Apparently. Leia doesn't want to have a cabinet meeting, but Nanawad, Ang, and Benny convince her that she should have one, and it goes surprisingly smooth. Everyone's trying to get on the same page with all that's going on. And then after, Nanawad talks to Leia and wants her to work on her public image. 
And Leia says she has earned all the criticism coming her way. She knows how badly she has messed up. That's good. She says she needs to earn respect back that she's lost and replace it with something false. That's also good. Very much like this. But I do think this point he made that it wouldn't hurt to do a little bit. Just a little bit. Not a lot. No embellishing, just truth. <laughs> Leia tells Han about what Nanayad wants to do. He says one of his old smuggler buddies on Focask recently reached out to him. The news there hasn't been kind to Leia, saying she believes in the divine right of monarchy, is chasing a crown, etc., etc. Han's friend added a short note that said, Is there something in the water there on Coruscant? She seems like such a nice girl, which literally nobody has ever said about Leia, but, you know. <laughs> Leia decides to cooperate with some of what Nanayad has suggested. Again, she's not going to go too deep into this, but she's going to try and repair her image a little bit because this is getting out of hand. Yeah. And I, I agree. Akbar and Malar take a look at a TX-65 primary trainer, and Akbar asks Malar wants to go up and fly it, and he's instantly like, yes, please, I want to fly. So Akbar gets a flight suit out and hands it to Malar, and Malar looks at it, and his name is on it. And he's like, what? What's going on? Where did this come from? Why is it here? And Akbar tells him that he will be a pilot for the New Republic. That was nice. Yeah. The Defense Council reviews the Yavetha attack. Paramus is no longer Thank on this council. <laughs> He's trying to get his planet out of the New Republic entirely. So, like, a Bith named Naradiga has replaced him. Biths are known for their pacifism, so Leia can't expect an ally out of him. Sorry, I should correct myself earlier. It was not a Bith colony. This was the Bith that was on my mind for this book. Ah, got it. Leia is not wearing her usual Alderaan robes. She's wearing a garment similar to a jumpsuit at Nanayad's suggestion, looking like ready for battle, ready for action. <laughs> Leia asks the Council what they will do. The Fifth Fleet is there, but no more than a stopgap solution. She asks for their Council in devising a plan to deal with the Yavetha. As discussions begin, the division in the Council quickly becomes evident. Senator Diga, the new Bith, calls into question the validity of the images. And Benny says sometimes we just have to trust our spies, or if that's asking too much, to trust our own eyes, which I very much love this comeback. And Diga then kind of just shuts up after that. I do feel like it's fair to be like, trust but verify. It is, but the way he asked it was pretty uh, disrespectful. It was inflammatory. Yes. It was provoking. Maruk then says, this is already history, and asks how these images are different from unavenged atrocities committed by the Empire. Tolik Yar then calls him a traitor for meeting with Nil, which, love that, and Maruk lunges at Yar. Benny is eventually able to calm everyone down. Feisty. Yeah, things are not going well here. Hours later, they have a compromise that no one likes, including Leia. They're going to send a message to the Yavetha. Han asks how will they know that Nil got it. Leia says they have three different holocom codes from Nil's visit. They will also broadcast on Channel 1, which Nil used, so they know he has access to it. Prowlers will also broadcast it in the general direction of the Kornacht cluster. So Leia, Han, Akbar, Riken, and others all get together. And Leia tells Nil to relinquish and withdraw from all systems they have seized. If not, the New Republic will enforce this directive by any means necessary. After the message is sent, all 106 ships of the 5th Fleet are on round-the-clock combat alert levels. The early public response to the transmission is favorable. They enjoy the show of strength and don't expect it to lead to war. The message is transmitted daily, but it looks like it's just being ignored. 
Grayson has a drone at Dornick 319, and it captures footage before being destroyed. It shows several ships in the system and the Yavetha setting up shop on the planet. The footage is shown to Leia and the others. Han says that Nil is calling Leia's bluff, and Riken agrees. Leia asks her council if they will support a blockade of Dornick 319, and they agree. Abat is told to go to the cluster and deny Dornick 319 to the Yavetha. So, 31 ships are chosen, including his own flagship, the Intrepid. Leia then sends another message. This one says that the New Republic forces will create a blockade and preside over the withdrawal of the Yavetan population. They will respond with force if attacked. She calls on Nil to announce their intentions to leave to help avoid unnecessary bloodshed. The Fifth Fleet arrives, but there are no Yavetan ships. Abat says that something doesn't feel right. Suddenly, Yavetan ships jump in and fire, including three Star Destroyers. It's a short fight, and Abat orders that they start retreating. He then sends trajectory data to another battle group that is waiting to jump in. The other battle group arrives, and things are looking good for the Republic. But the K-Wing bombers that target the Yavetan ships, they're about to fire, and then the Yavetha send out a message over the comms. They're coming from hostages the Yavetha have, and are saying, if you attack us, or if you attack the Yavetha, we will die too. Several bombers don't fire, nor do gunners on the capital ships. Things quickly go bad, and a bot orders retreat. The New Republic has lost this fight. In a pretty chilling strategy, I would say. Yeah. Benny orders the peace sign to be taken out of the Senate. It read, 1,000 days without a shot fired in anger when it came down. You all know you jinxed yourselves with that sign. Yeah, but it's still depressing. It's so depressing. Zero days since the last nonsense. <laughs> the ruling council summons Leia. It doesn't have much power, but as discussed earlier, it can recall the president of the Senate. Leia is brought in an hour after the meeting has started, and the vote of real confidence is based on four things. First, exceeding her charter authority. Second, recklessly endangering the peace and lives of the citizens of the Republic. Third, issuing illegal orders to initiate hostilities against a sovereign state. And fourth, incompetence to properly carry out the duties of office. Senator Praggett, not Borsk, has brought this forward, which surprises Leia. Borsk gets up to speak, and Leia expects him to deliver the killing blow, but instead he kind of helps her out. He just asks one question. Would she change any decision she's made over the last several days with the information that she had at the time? Leia says no. She believes they had the right to demand that the Yavetha withdraw and then blockade them when they refused, and that she consulted with the appropriate parties at every step of the way. The vote is taken, and it fails two to five. Praggett goes to Borsk after the vote and is very upset. <laughs> it was very funny. There's a little narrative part in here where Leia basically thinks, like, it's like Borsk just, like, put his coat down over a puddle for me. And I'm not really sure why. why. Benny and Leia then talk, and Benny says that Borsk will eventually come for Leia, but Praggett got there first. Borsk believes that this was too soon, and it wouldn't work even with his vote, which is why he voted for Leia. He always wants to be on the winning side, whenever possible. He's a consummate politician. He really is, for better and for worse. Like There are times when someone like that is good to have around. I mean, he's playing the game to win. Yeah. I'll give him that. Praggett apparently was mad at Leia that she didn't consult him before acting, and that the intelligence that she received didn't come from him because he's involved with that stuff. So that's why he did this. Like he was basically like, it's all vanity. Yeah. Ugh. Nil talks with Tal Fran, the architect of the route of the vermin. 
route like beating somebody in a fight, not route like a highway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think that's what he said in the book, and I got tripped up by it there as well. I was like, the route? Yeah. He says the directive sent by the vermin spoke of prisoners, which led him to believe that their actions could be controlled by that concern. Mill says that it was a big risk. It would not have stopped a Yvethan attack. Tal says that the vermin are not strong about death and knew it would not fail. He was right. Not strong about death is such an interesting way to put that. <laughs> you have to have interesting ideas about life, death, and blood. And yeah. I don't like them. Yeah. Leia interviews Lieutenant Daphne Scon. He claims to have been to Nazoth. He was once a member of the Imperial Navy, but he is now in prison. He's at first difficult, but eventually says, you know what? Let's go up about 300 clicks straight up, and I will tell you all you want to know. He's been on the ground in prison for 12 years. When he was in the Navy, he was never dirt side for more than 40 days. So he is someone who just loves to fly, loves to be out there. Yeah, he's the opposite of the type of average person we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Like, he's not on the planet. <laughs> so they take him up about 300 clicks, and he tells him everything he knows. And it says that Black 15 was frequently used for construction and finished work, not repair. It had a reputation as a great crew, and says that the Aveta are into dominance killing and blood sacrifice. Yikes. <laughs> it's only murder if a lower status male kills a higher status male. The reverse is expected and welcomed a lot of the time, it feels like. This is a cult. <laughs> Blood sacrifice, dominance, killing. When a male of lower status approaches one of higher status, they have to offer their neck, and there is absolutely no problem if you are killed right then and there. No one will raise an eyebrow. God, just trying to retrain people constantly would be a nightmare. In yeah. this culture. Well, I don't think they often do. I don't think they often do it unless true offense is given. But an or offense, unless somebody is on a power trip. Yeah. The, the offense can be very different for people, different people involved. I just got the impression that lower caste people, like, they really know their place among the Yavetha. They do. And they don't often test it. He also tells. Oslea about their hidden claws in their wrist because he's like, yeah, they slit each other's throat and she's like, with what, a knife? He's like, no, no, they've got these claws that come out. And she's like, oh, I was next to one of those and I had no idea. Bad. This is why you shouldn't be alone with people, Leia, because you don't know what they're capable of. He also says they are crazy but incredibly smart. The Empire was careful to not show them anything they didn't want the Aveta to turn around and build themselves. So they were kept away from sensitive stuff like hyperdrive technology. Not sensitive enough. <laughs> But they, uh, they've since probably been able to crack that code, he thinks. Yeah. Leia talks to Abbot and says that she's sending him more ships and asks what he needs. He says he needs better info about the enemy and wants to send scouts into the cluster, recon X-Wings, to all Yavetha worlds and the worlds they've attacked. He also says they could lose over half of those sent on the mission. Leia doesn't like the mortality rate, but in the end approves it. Malar is simming against the Yvethan forces based on the Dornick 319 fight. And Akbar comes by and tells him that he has orders. He will be a ferry pilot. So Malar gets back in the sim and he asks to be a recon X this time. Lieutenant Roan Tagger is in one of the recon X-Wings. He's going to Nazoth. His mother was a Y-Wing pilot and died at Endor. He gets to Nazoth and knows he needs to survive for five minutes to get as much information as he can back to the fleet. So one thing I want to point out here real fast about this lieutenant. One thing that this author's done a lot of is just drop names of people kind of throughout here that we'll see for a page or two, and that's it. And sometimes it can be kind of annoying. I actually really like that this author does this. Like, it makes the characters feel and the conflict feel more real to me. 
You're right. Like the archaeological people who just died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were named. We didn't we didn't name them in our episode. But yeah, there are random POV characters who we just see for a little while. And I, I like that. I, I think in certain authors, it works in certain authors, doesn't it? I think it, it mostly works for QB McDowell. I think for certain stories, it works. And for certain stories, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. I tend not to like that kind of thing just as a, like if I'm just establishing a general rule for my tastes mm-hmm. because I prefer a much closer third person perspective. I want it to be very limited. I don't want to have the omniscient eye that I feel like that kind of thing gives the reader because as previously mentioned, I'm a masochist and I want to suffer and have like be sort of blindfolded in a way in the same way that the characters are. I think one reason why I like that kind of thing is because I read these books when I was so young. Mm. Like, there's some of my former views of figuring out what I liked and didn't like. And even while I don't love these books, I, there's still elements of them I do enjoy. And I think that kind of thing just kind of stuck with me of just all these minor, small characters getting things from them. Yeah. Leia, Han, Akbar, Adar, Nilakirka, and others are waiting for the information to come in. Adar is there to help identify which ships are the ones from the original Black Fleet and account for their whereabouts. The room is shown a Super Story Story at Nazoth, and Adar's like, yep, that's the Intimidator. I know that one. <laughs> I mean, how many Superstar Destroyers are really floating around? That was the only one that was part of the original Black Fleet. So. Yeah, so easy to identify. However, they don't see any of the shipyards, and Akbar suspects they have all been moved and hidden. As time passes, the signals from the ships start being cut off, and eventually all cut out. No ship got more than 75% of the system scanned before the signal was lost. So this is significantly worse than a bot's worst-case scenario. And I think of the ones that were left, the ones that didn't get taken out, they were not manned. Yeah. Tagar's ship is disabled. A ship comes to capture him, but he waits till it's close enough and then self-destructs. Destroying himself and the ship. Nil is furious over the loss of the ship. He asks Tal how he anticipated that the vermin would violate the all, because Tal told him, you know, they're going to come back in here. And Tal says that he spent time with the vermin slaves he saw how they always wanted to debase even the smallest mysteries because we want to know everything. Me, I'm the vermin. It's me, I'm the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Nil wants Tal to help him figure out how to answer the vermin boldness. He wants to strike directly at Leia. Rutro. Akbar outlines the ships to be sent to the Farlax sector, pulling from almost every fleet the New Republic has. He also says that a bot will not be in charge of the combined force. Instead, Han will be as Commodore. The Defense Council, led by Borsk, insisted on him. Borsk has lost confidence in a bot. He wanted a Bothan, but of compromised course. with Han. Han isn't thrilled, but the Aveta discussed him so much that he's more than willing to do it, and he also asks if he'll get a hat. If this book was written at a different time period, I'd be like, this is a Pirates of the Caribbean reference, right? But no, <laughs> this was out like eight years before Pirates came out, something like that, seven years, so it's obviously not, but it, it still feels like I one. I mean, we all know that you know, fancy admirals and commodores get hats. I know, but I, I, I just imagine Jack going, I'll get you the hats. <laughs> I just think of Isabella from Dragon Age every time there's a hat reference. Oh. She always talks about big hats. That's right. <laughs> Primus apparently still has contacts in the Senate, and he likes to listen to the gossip, learn what's going on. And he learns about Han taking over, and eventually he gets the data of the exact route that Han will take. So, he sends that information to Nil. He's like, have fun, buddy. Yeah, I think he even walks out, like, as he's sending it, like, he even walks out of the room because he doesn't want to be, like, there when it's He feels seen. kind of disgusted about it. Yeah, you should, buddy. He should feel more disgusted. He should not do it. Malar is one of Hunt's escorts. In fact, I think this is Malar's first mission for the Republic. Poor guy. 
And they are pulled out of hyperspace by an interdictor. All fighters are immediately disabled, and the shuttle is taken. The fighters are left alive, just floating in space. Han is brought to Nil in private. Han says Nil has moved to the top of his least favorite people list. He had to drop Jabba the Hutt off to make room for him. <laughs> Love that insult. Nil says that Han is stronger than Leia and asks why he follows her. Han says Nil is very misguided about Leia and it's the biggest mistake he'll ever make. His second biggest was grabbing Han. The guards beat Han, but they are clearly new to it. It still hurts. Nil says Han's blood is weak, and then Han is taken to his cell. This whole scene takes place in the weirdest setting. It's like the breeding rooms. Yeah. The brood. Nil likes to hang out there. But, like, it's not, like, nice and nested. And no, all. There's, there's like, blood everywhere. There's grates. Yeah, there's grates in the floor for the blood. And there's cells where, like, the birth casks are. Yvette are nasty is what it comes down to. I don't know what's going on in there, and I don't want to know. No. The ruling council feels that Leia is too involved, so she's been summoned again. This time, the petition comes from Chairman Dorman Bruce, an old friend of the Organa family, and someone who Leia knows very well since her childhood. Benny says that Doman worries that Leia may act precipitously. Leia says, precipitously? Oh, he knows me. I'd like nothing more than to send the fifth in to burn the Yvetha off the face of Nazoth. But how can I? How can I do anything, Benny? The Yvetha have my husband. My children's father is in the hands of Nilspar. Ending the book. On a very dark and down note. Dun dun. So, what'd you think? I was kind of mixed about this book. Because I felt, and I still kind of feel, like not very much happened. I feel like this could have been pretty much half the length that it was, and we could have still gotten through all of the events that needed to occur in it, especially for certain storylines. Cough, Luke, and Akana? Yeah, that one in particular. So I was compelled by everything that was happening. It wasn't like I had a hard time picking it up and getting through it, but I just felt like I wanted something... I wanted something to happen. I wanted something bigger to happen. I feel like I got more of that in Leia's section, but even so, it feels like we're just, we're remaining at like a new stalemate, kind of, every time. I mean, it's a powerful cliffhanger, but... I agree. So for me, Lando, Leia, Luke. That's my order of enjoyment for the three distinct sections of this book. Lando's was the most exciting, it was a lot of fun to read. Leia's wasn't as tense as the first book, but it was still really fascinating, really interesting, and very dark, and it ends on a really somber note, frankly. like She had just beaten back these, this political attack on her, and now it's back because her husband has been kidnapped. I mean, that's awful. Makes me very excited for the next book. Luke's section was at times boring, and Akana wasn't exactly trustworthy, but I still found it really interesting for the most part, just less than the other two. It was too slow moving, not enough happening. That was the one that I struggled through the most, for sure. And, like, their conversations, though, are still very interesting. I really like their philosophical discussions most of the time. Yeah. But that can be just a little more laborious to read. Yeah. I agree. I think my enjoyment was the same. It was kind of, it was both good and bad that, like, Lando's section was right at the top, because that was the one, even though it's so disconnected, that was the one I was most interested in. And it got me really into the book right away, because I'm very compelled by this mysterious ship. But then it's have to go from that to the Luke and Akana section. But that was the right placement for it. Yeah. 
it makes sense to end on Leia's section. Yeah. Personally, I didn't love the separation of the stories. It worked, but I'd much rather be jumping between the three stories rather than focusing on just one and then the other. And I think that also would have helped these slower sections feel not as slow. Because you're not stuck with them for so long. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why the author made that choice. And it was an interesting choice. And I do think it worked because they are so distinct and separated in this book. But I would rather have the, you know, scene on the Vagabond, then jump to the Mudsloth, then jump to Nazoth. And yeah. I'm going to put forward a theory. Tell me. Because I know how fast he wrote these. And I know how he wrote fast each they were one published. separately, so it's easier to keep them together rather than intersperse. Yeah, I think they ran out of time to figure out how to cut and dice everything so that it was evenly split. Because when you're when you're writing something like this, I mean, and you're writing from multiple perspectives, you go through periods of depending on who you are as a writer and what your process is. You go through periods of time where you just, you know, you don't write in order, mm-hmm. like. You don't write a chapter from Lando and then write a chapter from Luke and then write a chapter from Leia at at stretches at a time. If the one that's that's working for you is Lando, then you're just going to write all of that at a stretch, divide it into chapters and figure out how to intersperse them with the others later. But I would kind of bet that they looked at the manuscript at the end and thought it works pretty well. It doesn't make sense, like because the plot lines are also disconnected it doesn't really make sense to move chapters around just to do like an even split. Now I think that this book doesn't work as a succinct book because everything is so disconnected. There is not a, there's not a unification of purpose in here (laughs) that I would like to see, but like it was such a short production schedule that I mean, it was what it was. (laughs) I would bet that they just, we're yeah, like, let's I just publish it. Before the storm had a lot of setup, but Shield of Lies had very little payoff. It felt like the characters of the story were just moving around to get in place for the final book of the trilogy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it actually feels, I think, is a common issue in the middle chapter of a trilogy. But it did lead to part of this book just not working as well as I would have liked. It was almost felt like, not quite, but rearranging the deck chairs of the Titanic in a way. <laughs> yes. Like, move it here. No, no. Going to move it over here. Just get it ready for the, the big finale. Yeah, and I feel like the issue is really the way like that the structure should work in a trilogy is not just that the first book does so much setup. It should have its own succinct story so that people can dip in just for the first book. I think a good example, first book of the Jedi Academy trilogy that you enjoyed. Jedi Search. No, that one still did way too much setup and didn't have any payoff self-contained. It had some. It didn't really. I mean, Han and Kip got away. I guess. And like Luke collected his people, but there wasn't a big like, there wasn't a big thing All right. that really happened. There wasn't Death Star blowing up in A New Hope. Yeah, like that's the example yeah. of a, a streamlined kind of story where it's it's still somewhat self-contained. Obviously, the story goes on, but you could just watch that movie <laughs> and you would have a whole story. Yeah. Whereas... And then the other option, if you're doing a long series or even a trilogy, is that you don't really have that in the first book. But that means that something has to pay off in the second installment. Something has to happen. And I feel like the author went with that option where there was a lot of setup in the first book and then nothing paid off in the second book. And now it's all got to rest on the third book and like... Good luck to you. I think it, the third book could still be really good, but I don't think it's going to be exceptional as a result. Yeah, 
I think that's fair. Like I said before, this is a good Star Wars series. It's not a great Star Wars series. And like, believe me, this is not a slight against this author. I have this problem as a creator. It's most obvious in our Pathfinder game that I run. <laughs> All I do is set up dominoes every every time. I've <laughs> been running this game for years. I continue to set up more dominoes and I never knock any of them down. <laughs> it's hard because that's the point at which you have to commit. You're committing to what kind of story that you're telling and you don't want to pull the trigger too soon. You definitely don't want to pull it too late, though. <laughs> don't leave it too late. <laughs> I guess we're shooting dominoes now. I really mixed some metaphors there. <laughs> yep. One thing I did appreciate about this book, even the slower sections, there was always interesting conversations going on. For the most part, the author rarely commits the sin of leaving a character alone for too long that they start navel-gazing. It does happen a couple times with Luke, but overall, there's almost always two people on the page having interesting interactions, interesting conversations. No one's alone for too long. So that I do appreciate about this author. And as much as I hate it, Luke is the right person to be he alone is. and navel gazing, wool gathering, etc. And for him, it wasn't too bad in yeah. terms of how often it happens. Oh yeah, compared to some other. Even though it was like like Sackville commits that sin too much. Planet of Twilight. Oh yeah, Corrin did so much wool gathering in I Jedi. Yeah. Finally, despite not a ton happening in this book, I still find the central plot of the Aveta very interesting and frankly distressing. It's not the first time one of the core trio has been in peril, but it does feel more dangerous and personal than many of the other times in the EU to me. Mm. Like, it's I don't always know. Han. Often, yeah, like, like going back to the Jack Academy trilogy. Yeah, getting stuck on Kessel. Which is funny because the original one was Leia back in the day. I the know. They've decided that Leia can't be, can't fall into that stereotype too much. So that wraps up the second book of the Blackfeet Crisis Shield of Lies. Okay, with our discussion all Shield of Lies behind us, let's look forward to Tyrant's Test and see where things might go from here. Okay. What will be Chewie's response to Han being captured? Anger. Outrage. Aggression. The dark side. Yeah. I mean, good luck, Nell. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be on the other end of that angry Wookiee. No. Do Yvetha have extra arms to pull off? Because I feel like Chewie would enjoy that. I think they only have two arms. Yeah, but they've got the claw. They could rip that out, too. Yeah, start there. Will Leia be ousted from office? No. No. I think that's just too easy of a way for me to not have her be in that position anymore. I would bet that they're going to like temporarily replace her during the remainder of the crisis okay. and then reinstate her once she's no longer like personally compromised or whatever it is they said. Is the ruling council right? Should she be removed from office because of how close she is to Han? I don't think... Okay, this is hard because I don't feel like Leia has been making great decisions recently. So I think better in Shield of Lies than before the storm, though. Yeah, but like she doesn't have a great track record overall in office mm -hmm. from what we've personally seen. So from that perspective, I understand like this is kind of the final straw, and I do kind of feel that they're right. On the other hand, I can't help but feel that if she was a man, they would never be considering removing her from office because she can't deal with her position because she's too close to it because of Han being captured, you know? Mm -hmm. But 
I think my first answer supersedes the second only because I don't I wouldn't blame anyone for being unimpressed with her. <laughs> also, frankly, I wouldn't blame Leia for like wanting to step back. Yeah. But I actually don't think that Leia would want to step back in this situation. Agreed. I think she would want to maintain control. Yeah. Will Platt Millar be allowed to fly for the Republic again? Why not? He's one of the ones who lost Han. Oh, come on. <laughs> Han lost himself. What was one guy in a fighter going to do about it? Well, I mean, just if the Republic doesn't know how or why the information was leaked, they're going to look at the pilots who was ferrying him, and Millar is the one who kind of stands out as being very different than the rest, probably. I guess. I'm guessing, since you're saying this, this factors hugely into the next book. Maybe. Or I'm just... It literally never crossed my mind okay. before reading this question. I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> Did the His uh... entire people were decimated by the Yavetha. Why on earth would anyone think he would sell out the New Republic to them? That's just insane. If that's a major plot point next book, I'm betting Borsk is behind it, because he's a true idiot. That does sound like a Borsk thing. Did I see Borsk again in this book? Did you miss him? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did the Aveta actually have any hostages on their ships? No. No? No. Okay. It was all just a trick. I'm sure that the hostages thought that they were on ships, but... Why risk losing those hostages when they could be used again later? How does the Vagabond fit into all of this? <sighs> I was actually lying awake last night trying to come up with an answer to this question. <laughs> and I was thinking about it again while we walked the dog this morning. And I was thinking about it again while I was doing my laundry before we came in here. <laughs> and I don't have a great answer. The answer I like best that I've come up with is that they're, they actually... The Vagabond and the Kella don't actually tie into this in any meaningful way. The Kella are just a harbinger of what is about to happen to the Yavetha. You think they can be bombed by asteroids? I think they're just going to be wiped out. Uh Because they became too arrogant and advanced too quickly. And so now the, you know, cosmic hand of the New Republic is going to strike them down. In that case, that kind of answers the next question. Are the Kella and the Vepa somehow related? I don't think so. Okay. I guess the other option is... Hang on, let me rethink this. No, that just doesn't work. I was going to say, maybe the Kella are a split-off branch of the Yavetha. Like, maybe they both originated from the same... Ancestry? Yeah. And so... We've already seen at least somewhat far back on the Kella side of things. Yeah. But Lobot and the others don't know anything about the Yavetha, what's going on there, so it makes sense for them not to tie that in. So, mm-hmm. po- I would say that's possible. Not plausible, but it's possible. I really, I, I feel like I have no idea how these two threads tie together, and it's very frustrating. Sorry. <laughs> but also, like, I, I feel like part of the problem is that in Before the Storm, there was this third-person omniscient section that talked about the history of the Yavetha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so many of my wild theories about how these tie in together are eliminated just by those few paragraphs. Assuming that they're truly third-person omniscient and not that this is some faulty narrative of the Yavetha themselves. Which is possible because one of my theories kind of early on was that the yavetha wiped out the kella 
just out of sheer orneriness, I suppose. Like one of my theories was that the Kella were a species that originated within the Kornacht cluster, just like the Yavetha did. And the Yavetha found them between the time that the New Republic passed over, or not the New Republic, Jesus, the Old Republic, I suppose, passed over doing a survey and the time that they came back to complete the survey, the Yavetha wiped them out in that little eight-year slice or whatever and made it look like asteroids. The thing that's important here is just that the Yavetha had space flight, but they did not have hyperspace flight until the Empire arrived. So for this theory to make sense, the Kella have to be in the Kornacht cluster or extremely extraordinary, extraordinarily close to it. And I've there has been no, I don't think, evidence yep. that that's true. Unless the author is just like purposefully not saying anything. So I don't know. It's a it's a mystery to me. The Lando storyline is so interesting. But at the same time, I'm like, why? <laughs> why does it matter? Why is it here? <laughs> why is it here at all? <laughs> and like we've seen the Yavetha like style of ships. They are not at all like the Vagabond. No. Like this weird envelope. Almost partially organic. Yeah. It thing. feels almost closer to the Vong than anything else. Yeah. But still very far from that. So it does feel like the ship must be Kella or something else and not Yavetha, in which case, like, how do they relate? I don't know. I've given you all of, all of my thoughts. <laughs> Maybe not all of them, but the ones that are most coherent. Okay. Okay, barely 24 hours have passed since I last answered this question, but I had a breakthrough. (laughs) So I've been thinking about it from a past perspective. I've been thinking, how do the Kella in the past and their demise relate to the present day conflict with the Yavetha, right? I needed to change my perspective. So I came up with a new a new question. I don't like this as much because I I feel like it allows me to see too much of the scenery behind the story. But the question becomes instead, how does the Vagabond, the ship, solve the problem of the Black Fleet crisis? Crashes into the spark? I mean, maybe. Like, it clearly has pretty substantial weapons. If they can figure out how to use it and pack the cat finds Lando and the vagabond at the right time. And they all arrive at an important conflict together. That ship could potentially turn the tide. I mean, we don't fully know what it's capable of, but we do know that it's capable of some stuff. Right. So I guess that's the other way that this storyline could relate to the Yavetha storyline. Like I said, I don't like this as much because I feel like in that case, it's like this ship was just dropped into the story to eventually solve a problem. It's basically like Chekhov's gun. It's Chekhov's vagabond. (laughs) It appeared in act one, the first book, a lot of attention, too much attention was paid to it. You don't pay this much attention to a Chekhov's gun, but like, then it will go off in the third act. So the Vagabond in the end of that section was just attacked. What would be the fate of those on board? 
I'm sure they'll be fine. All four of them? Yeah. I mean, th- at least three of them have, I think, plot armor. Lando, R2, and 3PO? Yeah. I think Lobot is in the most danger. Okay. <laughs> that one um, SpongeBob meme. <laughs> I'm in danger. Is that SpongeBob? No, I'm thinking of a different one. Um, I think it's a Simpsons meme. And the person, like, chuckles and says, I'm in danger. Yeah. Yeah. That's Lobot. <laughs> Finally, jumping to the last storyline of the book. Will Luke and Akana find the circle? Yes. They've they've followed markers all along the way, so I feel like... And we know the circle's still out there. Yeah. Like, we've seen them, so I think yes. Will they find his mother? Nah. Either not Podmails, but not even Nashira? Nah. I have a hard time just... I don't see any reason why why they couldn't in this version of events. I just don't think George would have signed off on it. At a, I agree. At a meta level, it just doesn't make sense. Because if she's alive and she has been located, then that reveals... It has the potential to reveal way too much about the prequel era, which he never wanted anybody to do before he got to it. So I guess she could be alive with severe amnesia, and then they could find her that way. She's taking that uh, Endor drug. Yeah. I mean, that's... Fungus. Yeah, that's the... uh, that's the solution, I guess. But I just don't think they're going to find her. I, and I don't even necessarily think that she'll be dead. I'll, I just think that, like, maybe she'll have split off from the circle. And they have no idea where she is. Okay. And, like, then good luck finding a needle in the haystack that is the galaxy. If she doesn't want to be found, ain't nobody going to find her. Especially with their abilities to hide themselves so well. Yeah. I mean, for Luke's sake, I hope it's a little bit more clean than that because i think as long as he thinks that she could be out there he'll never be able to put the past in the past so i think it would almost be better if there was a certain fate for her like that she did die so that he can move on move on until padme is created and then they can find out oh that's actually your mother do they return to that in the eu after the prequels come out well there is a character who does know all and who hangs with Ronald Luke all the time. R2. Yeah. Um, I guess technically. If they were to, he's the avenue. Because he was specifically not wiped the way 3PO was. That's true. Why would... <laughs> I was just quiet for so many seconds while I just thought about that. Because it really, like... I try not to think about it. It is really canon-breaking for me. That R2 would be around for this long. Around Luke for this long, specifically. And not say anything. That doesn't make any sense. Like, he knows Anakin is Vader. Why didn't he say something? It was a mistake by George, I think. And you wipe 3PO's memory, you should have wiped R2's too. I think that would have just been much cleaner. Like, R2 knew Yoda. And hated him. <laughs> and that, that one I can kind of pass over as whatever. He's not going to say anything, but yeah. Why did, they, why did they leave that open? You have to ask George. All right. Well, he's only like an hour drive away. Let's go. And just be like, hey, jerk face. I have a question for you. <laughs> Are you motivated to answer my question <laughs> based on the way I've approached you? <laughs> nah, I'm not going to do that. But I do think it's a miss. There are a few issues with connecting the prequels and the originals. And to me, that's one of the most glaring ones, if not the most glaring one. 
Maybe R2 wiped himself. Just mm. very specific bits and pieces. I don't know. That doesn't sound like something R2 would do. Unless he was really traumatized by Anakin's transformation. I, mean, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, some mysteries will never cease, and that's just going to have to be something that I live with. I'll forget about it in a week, and then it won't bother me anymore. <laughs> okay. Next up, we'll be discussing the next short story in Tales from Jabba's Palace, Sleight of Hand, The Tale of Mar Jade, written by Timothy Zahn. What? You can look forward to that coming out on June 18th. What? Someone doesn't look at the schedule. <laughs> I was about to say, this is the gift that I receive for not looking at the schedule. I get a nice surprise. Yep. Is that the next one that I need to read? No, there's one before this. Dang it. <laughs> you look so happy right now. <laughs> I, I just, I miss her. I miss my girl. I know that she's a bad person. And that doesn't really change how I feel about her. Especially at this point in time. This is pre-Emperor's pre death. Yeah. Look, we all have our blind spots for some characters. And mine is her. <laughs> thanks to Thomas for editing. And thanks to Christopher for this crazy idea. And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at tk331podcast. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend or a family member or, I don't know, your local grocer about it. If you have a planting project coming up, you could always just sort of in your front yard plant flowers in a particular pattern maybe in the pattern tk331 just so that you know people walking by and people flying by overhead <laughs> wonder what's that about <laughs> and now here it is remember star wars just listen to me for a moment when old people start wars young people die and every hero every war has ever made went out that morning with comrades who were every bit as brave but not quite as lucky You've used up a lot of luck already getting here, Platmalar, and no one, no one anywhere would ever say a word to you if you were to choose not to put on that flight suit and chose instead to make a life here. You stole that life back from those marauders. You need not offer it up again.